The 2021 college football season kicks off this month. If you need to stay up to date on personnel news, including injuries, suspensions, transfers, and position battles, consider becoming a Tier 2 Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash cfbwinningedge. For $15 per month, you'll receive access to our 2021 FBS team profiles, which includes daily updated depth charts, more than 10,000 individual player ratings, plus unit and coach ratings, roster strength, team performance, projected point spreads in each of our three projection models, stats, returning production, and much more. Visit patreon.com slash cfbwinningedge to join. Welcome back. It's CFP Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by Nicholas Ian Allen, the owner and proprietor of CFP Winning Edge. Follow him on the Twitter at CFP Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. And we are continuing our conference preview series today. And we are into the P5. And we start in the ACC with Boston College. Now, Boston College ranked 71 by our metrics last season. Jeff Halfley and Phil Dracovic uh, spearheaded a six and five season, five and five in conference uh, in multiple upsets. And they barely lost to Clemson and UNC. So we know the core is here. We have them at seven and five. Their DK total is seven, favored to win an eight. Talent edges in five. We did get some more questions for these teams, and BC had a couple. Now, uh, the first one asked, arguably, uh, BC arguably overachieved in Jeff Halfley's first season. Could that impact the potential of a year two bump? And uh, CK asked, last year, BC flipped the script completely from a top 10 rushing uh, offense to a passing team. They have a great offensive line, too. Do we think they get back to at least a balanced attack this year, Nick? So uh, questions about, uh, you know, potential progression in the second year in the system, specifically after COVID uh, COVID year with limited practices and all that stuff. And uh, maybe seeing them even out more towards a balanced team than a pass first team, because that's not what we're used to seeing from BC. So what do we think about Boston College for 2021, Nick? Yeah, BC was a, a really interesting team. They were a team that our uh, projection model actually did a, a pretty good job kind of anticipating what I what I thought was a, an improved team. I know the, the record really wasn't different much, uh, but, you know, a lot of people expected a drop off, even though Steve Badazio wasn't, you know, the most highly regarded head coach and, and kind of seemed to have maximized Boston College's, uh, you know, potential maybe under under his watch. You know, I, I thought that the Jeff Hatfley hire was a really good one, was a, was a, definitely a fan of it. He had had a, a big impact in one year at Ohio State. Uh, and, you know, they, they were able to maintain and in some areas improve. And, and part of that is, you know, kind of related to CK's question about uh, they were a very, very different offense. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that that showed to me was a willingness to, uh, you know, uh, put in a, a system or, or lean into what you do well based on the personnel that you've got available to you. And, you know, Halfway and his coaching staff did, of course, 
bring in some transfers, went out and got Phil Dracovic, got uh, Jalen Gill from Ohio State, who was a, a you know fringe five-star guy. Uh, when he was recruited out of high school, they've certainly hit the transfer portal hard on defense. The defensive line last year, uh, you know, featured several transfers. So they went out and, and remade the roster in some ways, but also, you know, they took some players that they inherited and, and put them in a position to succeed. Zay Flowers, I think, being uh, maybe the best example of that. He went from a guy who had a, a, a you know, really – uh, outstanding freshman year where he flashed quite a lot. And then by time, you know, last season as a, as a true sophomore, really developed into one of the better receivers in the ACC. Right now we think could be uh, one of the best receivers in, you know, college football. So in, in some ways, the ability to kind of maintain that overall winning record uh, was, in my eyes, a bit of an overachievement. But also, you know, the ability to uh, change up what they do from being such a run-heavy team under Adazio. I, I put a note in the uh, Biathlon sports preview uh, this year. I, I did the numbers to know section. And one thing I came across was that Boston College, uh, you know, had a 68% run rate in 2019 and then a 55% passing rate if you include sacks in 2020 and that 23, almost 24 uh, percentage point difference was the biggest shift from one, uh, you know, one style of offense to the other, at least as far as, you know, run to pass ratio in the country. So, uh, you know, they changed a lot. They were still able to, to maintain and succeed in a lot of ways, but to that first question of how would last year's results impact a potential year two bump, that's something that's been on my mind a lot uh, in relation to Boston College specifically. But in the ACC, we saw a lot of second year head coaches last year. And, you know, I, I wonder a little bit because the assumption is, or at least sort of the general, you know, feeling around, okay, year one, you go in and, and uh, a lot of times, you know, year one now is, is, treated like a year zero where you kind of strip everything down and, and slowly start to rebuild it. But some guys come in and, and have success, either maintain or, or even improve a little bit. And I would put Boston college in that category. So if they were able to do that is, you know, there's not as much room maybe to, to bump in year two. And there were some situations where BC was a little bit fortunate. I mean, they won a game in overtime, they, you know, had a 91% post-game win expectancy in that game against Pitt. But overtime is basically a coin flip anytime you go. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to think, okay, maybe that was a, a, a little bit fortunate to, to get that one. They were 26% in their post-game win expectancy against Texas State in week two. Uh, you know, so that that's a game that at least according to the, the stats after the fact, you would expect they would lose that game three out of four times. They also had less than a 50% post-game win expectancy uh, against Louisville. You know, so they were able to win close games. They also, you know, only beat Syracuse by three, even though the stats look good in that one. Uh, that's still, you know, a close win. And, and sometimes it's difficult to tell if a close win is an indication of luck or, you know, coaching prowess or, or, you know, sometimes it just happens that you win close, but you know, they were, they were fortunate in spots. 
they did improve the talent on hand. Uh, BC ranks 50th overall in roster strength, 34th on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, so they do certainly have some playmakers. They do have some good players. They rank, you know, really high on a lot of people's offensive line lists. Everybody's coming back. Three of the uh, five returning starters have been all ACC caliber players in the past. They're actually 11th in our O-line talent ratings, which is the highest rated uh, position group that they've got, according to our numbers. But I, I think that that unit is maybe not quite as good as some people think. They finished 62nd in our O-line performance ratings last year. Uh, so I'm, I'm torn a little bit on Boston College. Um, I, I think that last year they were good, not great, and they might have been a tiny bit worse than their record would indicate. They got fortunate in some spots. So I wonder if that's going to, you know, if there's going to be a little bit of regression this year. That said, the schedule is very, very manageable. 79th overall in our strength of schedule numbers. That's the weakest schedule in the ACC. Uh, favored in eight games, you know, even, even though they are not the most talented team in the ACC, not even top half, to have five talent edges is something. Our, our stats model, our PRISM uh, projected scoring margin model, respects them enough to have them favored in, in six games. And, and that doesn't include a couple of, uh, you know, real close uh, come up short a little bit against Missouri. They're less than, you know, uh, 0.10 points an underdog against Missouri. They're about one and a half points an underdog to NC State, according to that model, about half a, a point uh, at Louisville, according to that model. So, you know, they're, they're certainly a lot of winnable games. And, and the three different ways that we look at each team in each matchup, BC has some, some favorable matchups. That said, my own personal sort of win projection, it's a pretty wide range. It's one of the widest, I think, in the ACC. I think they should, you know, be a bowl team. Uh, I could game out a few scenarios to where they really underperform and, and still get, you know, five wins. Uh, but if things really start to, to come together and they're able to actually build off of last year and get, you know, considerable uh, improvement in, in some statistical areas and some other, um, you know, uh, just, just sort of how things play out. This could be a nine or 10 win team. So I, I personally struggle a little bit to come up with a, a, you know, number of a final, uh, record. And so it probably shouldn't surprise, you know, too many people that, that are predicted, final record of seven and five, four and four in, in conference is right on line with that DraftKings win total. So I'm I'm not confident enough one way or the other in BC. I take a little bit of uh comfort, I guess, that that our model was pretty good on BC last year. They were in a lot of people's minds, you know, a team in the 80s, 90s, hundreds in preseason uh rankings. Uh, we we had them about where they are right now, 71st, but very, very competitive. So hopefully, you know, we'll be able to maintain that. And we're not getting too high on BC because I see some people thinking, you know, or, or writing about or saying uh, dark horse ACC, you know, contender, uh, a, a top 25 caliber team, if, if all goes right. I'm not quite ready to get there yet, but this is a good team. It's going to be very difficult to beat. Uh, but I think that year two bump will be minimal 
six or seven wins seems about right. I, I mean, Xavier, you know, this is probably one of the more difficult teams to sit and pick out wins for. I mean, I think the first three games, when you look at that, you know, Colgate, UMass, Temple, those should be W's. But then after that, every other game is, you know, they play Clemson, that's a loss. Every other game, they could win or lose. You know, Missouri, right. they are literally 50%. Uh, NC State, a little under 50 Uh not great odds against Louisville, but you know, reverse that against Syracuse. Uh, Virginia Tech in the realm of possibility to beat them. Georgia Tech, Florida State, Wake Forest. These are all winnable games for Boston, so or for Boston College. But so it makes it hard to pick out a total for them, right? Yeah, but I mean, you really look at their schedule and you really say if they win their home games, then they're one win off from their projection. You know, they have. You know, they, they I think that they can win their home games, probably barring the Missouri matchup. Um, I do like them at home against NC State coming off of a bye week. I know that it doesn't look great for them, but for me, that that, that added week, as well as it being a home game, really adds to that ability to prepare. I, I like the fact that they that three of their last four games of the season are also at home. Uh, they get Virginia Tech, Florida State, and Wake Forest at home with their only away game going to Georgia Tech at that point. I really like that as well for them. I think that that allows them to build up a certain confidence where you may need it. You know, we're talking about a team that very well could be on the cusp uh, of a bold uh, bold team going into those last four weeks. They may need to win three out of those four to get into a bowl game or, you know, four out of, you know, all four of them maybe. You know, you never really know. But I I really like the way that their schedule lines up with with that last three of the four being at home games. And I really like Boston College coming into this year. I'm a little shocked that Nick was uh, as pessimistic as he was about the team because I I do feel like for the first time in a a while, Boston College has the ability on the offensive side of the ball to to play with the other teams in their conference. Uh, This is a team that has relied on backs like A.J. Dillon to to, to carry the load for them for, for years now. And Although that's great for grinding out close games and, you know, for some of those less physical teams, you're able to just kind of bludgeon them and and wear them out. When you're playing some of these more, uh, you know, these more electric offenses, especially in a conference that you can see is starting to move in that direction. Obviously, we know Georgia Tech is is no longer running their traditional triple option and they're moving to more of a passing style. We just we're talking about Boston College, a team that has been primarily a run heavy team moving to a passing style. It's like it's nice to see that they have a team now that they actually can do that. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised that that, that uh, of, of the pessimism. I think that this is a team that can absolutely win seven plus uh, with their schedule. I think yes, there's a lot of toss ups, but I think there's going to be a lot of toss ups as we talk about a lot of teams in this conference. Uh, but as, as every year with the uh, ACC, the the cream rises to the top very quickly. And in the last couple of years, it is it, we know from maybe week three or week four what some of those teams look like. You know, Scott, you brought up Syracuse. I think by week four last year, we knew what kind of team Syracuse was going to be. Same thing goes for Louisville. Uh, Georgia Tech was another one that we knew by the UCF game, which I think was week four for them. We knew what what kind of ball club this team was going to be. So I think, yes, as of right now, you know, you're looking at, you know, and they have probably the easiest start to any team in ACC to their schedule. I think they start off three and oh, and from there, it's just keeping your head above water as you do face probably the the hardest stretch in your, um, in your schedule Go playing Missouri Clemson and NC state. If you can keep your head above water and just win one of those games, that gives you four um, with a stretch of games that are complete toss ups all the way down. And I think at that point, you're a lot, you're, you're, I'm more confident that they can win eight games or, uh, or seven games plus at that point. So I, I like Boston college. I think this is a team that's, is trending upward right now. 
Uh, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Obviously, on the recruiting trail, they're doing really well. They finished 37th nationally in 2021. They finished eighth in the ACC. Uh, a look ahead to 2022. They're currently 19th in na- uh, nationally, looking at the 2022, uh, bringing in two four-stars, uh, two uh, four-stars, which they didn't have last year. They didn't have any four-stars on their commitment list. Uh, currently ranked fifth in the ACC. Now, obviously, like I, I prefaced it, it's always early going into 2022. However, to be even in the top 20 or in the top 25 for recruiting for Boston College is really is really a, a strong step forward. Uh, so I like where Boston College is headed. I think this is a team that can win seven-plus games. I, I love their quarterback situation for the first time probably since Matt Ryan, honestly. Um, so I, I think that this is for the first time in Boston College, a balanced offense that can beat you on the ground and through the air, which is something we've never really seen from a Boston – which you haven't seen from a Boston College team in a very long time. I think that gives them an opportunity – to you know, compete in this conference at a high, at a higher level than what they have in the past. Uh, Nick, Nick, you have something to add? Yeah, two two just real quick points that I mm-hmm. uh, failed to mention. Uh, they ranked 105th last year in our rushing offense team performance. Uh, plus, they lost David Bailey, who was kind of a, a go-to bell cow type running back. Uh, they've got options. Travis Levy, Alex Singfield is a transfer from uh, West Virginia who can uh, catch the ball out of the backfield and, and run. So it'll be interesting to see how that picks up. But that offensive line is, is going to have to improve uh, You know, run blocking. They, they've got to be able to run the ball a little bit better so that that offense is so one-dimensional i think that'll that'll you know hurt them this year if if they do continue to be so one-dimensional they were top 20 in passing offense uh, according to our team performance ratings but uh being in triple digits and rushing is is a a real uh you know a spot where you don't want to be in and then defensively i i really think halfley does a great job I've, i've seen uh, you know, different quotes and things, the, the anonymous uh, opponents uh, talking about how, you know, schematically they are so much different, so much better. Um, his, you know, NFL uh, history is, is I think, a big part of that. But last season, they were almost triple digits across the board in uh, our team performance metrics on the, on the defensive side. They were 96 in defense overall, 94 against the pass, 89 against the run. And they lost some talented players. They lost multiple draft picks. Uh, or, or actually, you know, one draft pick, Isaiah McDuffie, six rounder, uh, and then two guys who became undrafted free agents and Max Roberts and, and Max Richardson. So, you Hunter know, losing three better players. Too, right? I meant just on defense, but, but yeah, oh, yeah. Defense. Hunter Long, a tight end, uh, third round pick. Yeah. Um, but, you know, losing some of your better players and having, you know, some pretty poor results last season, I think that coaching staff is good enough that we're going to see improvement just. You know, this is one of those cases I think the defense will get a year two bump, but uh, they've got some work to do on defense and running the football for this team to, to really progress. And, and I think they can. I'm just not quite ready to buy in to, to that we'll see enough improvement on both of those sides to, to really see BC jump. But I think it's more likely than not that they go to the over. I just can can see a few different scenarios in my mind to where they just regress a little bit. All right, let's go over to the big dog in the ACC, which is Clemson, who we have at rank number two. Uh, they came up short for a national title, getting uh, kind of smacked around by Ohio State, forty-nine to twenty-eight in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, they were ten and two, eight and one in conference last year. The DK win total is eleven and a half. 
Uh, we have them favored to win in uh, 12 town edges and 11 and going 11 and one. We did get a, a question. I love this name from notorious DRE. And he said, he got to uh, discuss the real possibility of Clemson leaving the ACC because, you know, Texas and Oklahoma kind of the first two dominoes to fall. And we've already heard Florida state and Clemson potentially talking to the sec as well. So what do you think about that, Nick? And then Clemson's chances in 2021. Yeah, we, we haven't talked very much realignment. Uh, I've, I've been trying to avoid it best I can, quite honestly. I've muted the word realignment on Twitter and, and need to go in and mute uh, all the athletic director last names and president's last names and all that good stuff too, to, to just kind of streamline things a little bit. It's just not really where my mind is right now. Uh, I, it sounds like there's a lot more or, or, you know, contractual obligations are a lot longer and a lot uh, bigger for the ACC teams, um, like through 2035 or something instead of 2025 for the, the Big 12 teams. So uh, I know both Clemson and Florida State kind of, you know, shot down any any rumors that there had been any sort of discussions, but there there certainly is a lot of chatter out there. So it'll it'll be interesting to see. But but right now I'm I'm a little more focused on. You know, what are we going to see on the field uh, this year than, than what happens, uh, you know, in, in realignment stuff in, in the next few years? But interested if, if you guys have thoughts on it. Oh, uh, do you go want ahead, me to go first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <sighs> I, I think I think we're getting a little too far ahead of ourselves right now. I be, obviously, we see what happened with what's going on with, with Texas and Oklahoma, uh, but I just don't see the incentive for anything moving and shaking in the ACC as of right now. Um, if you're Clemson, this is that, that would be hurting your chances of getting to the college football playoff by going to the SEC. Um, reports suggest that the SEC doesn't necessarily want Clemson from a you know from a financial uh, point of view, and I don't blame them. Uh, Clemson is a relatively new school, new powerhouse in college football, um, you know, and so I would I would be surprised if you know they brought them into the SEC with them also being a team that could compete. And hurt the, and hurt their own chances of having maybe more than one team in the in the college football playoff at that point. Um, I'd be more. I think we would see more so, and we'll talk about this team later. But I think we would be, see more so Florida State or Notre Dame be invited into the SEC before we start saw saw a Clemson because they carry more weight in college football as as currently stands. I mean, you know, I, I think we're eventually going to end up moving to the big super conferences and all that stuff. And at that point, you're going to want the best teams in your conference, but uh, I don't know, to be honest with you. And, and I, I'm kind of glad that they shot down the rumor immediately. So this hasn't become a bigger discussion, but I think it's going to be something that we're going to have to be on the lookout for in the near future, because sure, maybe they have a contract through 2035 and all that stuff, but we all know the SEC prints money. They'll find a way to get them out of that if they really want them in the conference. So, uh, I, I think it's a possibility, but I'm kind of glad right now we're just focusing on football. So, uh, I mean, I just, it's, it's not something, you know, even with Texas and Oklahoma for sure moving, it's not going to happen until 2025. So it's not really something that is on the docket that has to get settled anytime soon. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that, uh, I, I think I disagree a little bit with Xavier that, that if the SEC were, were looking for others, that Clemson is a, a pretty good fit. Uh, but Again, it's not something that, that it's I'm spending too much time worrying about right now. I've thought about tweeting it out several times that uh, just putting I don't know if you guys 
ever played. Xavier probably never had a, a Sega Genesis, but the uh, uh, college football's national championship, that, that game was a, a game I played a lot growing up. And, I played Joe and Montana I, football 94. That's what similar, I similar. It was the college version of that game, I believe. But uh, I've, I've thought about tweeting a few times that, that college football fans of a certain age know how this ends and just putting like that uh, a, a, a screenshot of the teams that are in that game because there are 32 <laughs> teams and just like, yep, this, this is what we're moving toward. But anyway, Clemson specifically, you know, they're, they're one of the elite teams, elite programs, of course, in, in college football. Uh, we just did an update, finalized our 2021 statistical projections, which is that uh, PRISM stats-only model uh, going through to a, a five-year, three-year window for uh, every team, head coach, and uh, play caller on both sides, uh, all the you know passing offense, defense stats, uh, rushing, of course, and, and, and all of that for that time. And, and that really uh, was the final big piece to essentially finalizing our projection. So there are, you know, some updates that we've uh, done. We, we, you know, you might notice as we're transitioning to the Power Five that uh, there are some teams, you know, that, that moved around a little bit. Clemson was one. I mean, they didn't have very very far to go, but uh, Clemson jumped Georgia as our number two team after we went through and, and made those updates. And uh, prior to this week, we had Georgia as about a one-point favorite in that week one game right now Clemson is almost a two-point favorite so you know a little bit of a little bit of a, a change there but overall doesn't really impact Clemson's you know projections too much that game is basically a coin flip I mean they're 54 percent uh Clemson to win in, in our uh pre-game uh projected win percentage and then you know there's a lot of 90s. I mean, 99% against Georgia Tech, 94% BC, uh, uh, NC State, 98% Boston College, 99, 99% Syracuse. I mean, it, it's it's basically 90 and above for for everyone. Pitt being the only team, uh, you know, that that's that's 90%, uh, you know, or has a 10% win expectancy against Clemson, other than Georgia. So, you know, it it, it makes sense. Hey, if they get past Georgia, that 11 and a half seems, you know, almost like a foregone conclusion. I mean, you, you can add up all of the, the rest of those games and, you know, we have uh, Clemson winning 10.6 uh, of those 11 games. So, you know, if Georgia doesn't get them, odds are very, very low. Somebody else could jump up and bite them, especially if something were to happen at the quarterback position because, you know, there is a little bit of a, a change there when you lose the number one draft pick. There's there's something to at least consider. DJ Uyunglele is about as good as it gets as far as a, a first-year uh, guy, you know, stepping into that role, and he was actually able to get his feet wet a little bit with two starts last year during which – you know, he threw for almost 800 yards, you know, didn't throw an interception in, in 10 appearances uh, as Trevor Lawrence's backup. But behind him, it's it's very, very thin at that position. They've got a true freshman, Will Taylor, who's number two on our depth charts. There's a walk-on in the mix there as well. Uh, but right now we have a punter, Will Spires, listed as, as their third quarterback. Uh, and so, you know, if something were to happen – to DJ and, and hopefully it doesn't, but uh, you know, we've seen guys 
last year, Trevor Lawrence, of course, missed a couple of games, not with an injury, but but with an illness. And that's something that could conceivably happen again this year. Hopefully it'll be, you know, happen far, far less. But uh, that's something that, that Clemson and, and other teams in college football have to navigate. Injury is always a concern. And, and you know, behind DJ right now, it, it doesn't look great. So uh, that could change everything. Hopefully he'll stay fully healthy. Hopefully he'll get through uh, and, and be able to lead Clemson to, you know, if, if you're a Clemson fan, hopefully you'll be able to lead them to another ACC championship playoff uh, uh, spot. And they're certainly capable of that uh, because they have really raised the level that they're recruiting over the last few years. They are playing at, a, at just an absolutely elite level. They were fourth in overall team performance last year. They're number two in both a three-year and five-year weighted team performance ratings. Uh, the offense ranked 11th. Uh, number five passing offense, and, and that shouldn't drop off at all uh, with with DJ Uyunglele. They were a top 10 defense, top uh, six rushing defense, and top 25 against the pass. My, my only concern, and it's not even you know a huge concern, is the secondary got exposed a bit in that game against Ohio State when they were facing an elite receiving core and an elite quarterback. Uh you know, some of some of Clemson's guys in the back seven aren't quite as athletic as other, you know, premier defenses. And they they certainly have some superstars. Andrew Booth was an all ACC guy, didn't even start uh, last year. And, and so he's stepping into that role. Going to be great. They are experienced. They've got, you know, four of, of five starters returning in the secondary. And that doesn't even include Booth. But just, you know, there's a little bit of of top-end athleticism that gives me, you know, some pause against teams like Ohio State, like Alabama, you know, if they were to get into that college football, you know, uh, national championship and into that uh, playoff uh, national championship game or, or, you know, semifinal. So we'll see if Georgia can can attack them like Ohio State was able to. Uh, I'm not sure that, that Georgia is quite ready to, to do that just yet. So I do think that's a toss-up. I do that think that's a game that, that Clemson uh, can win is is probably rightly a slight favorite, uh, but it's also a game that that Georgia will be ready for and, and has the talent to compete in that game as well. But you know there are very very few weaknesses. Uh, the running back situation. There's two or three guys in the mix to start. They're going to figure that out just fine. Uh, the offensive line you know, was inconsistent at times, but still was a top 25 unit in our uh, performance ratings last year. It's experienced enough, three or five starters returning and, and other really, you know, uh, highly rated guys coming in to, to uh, fill spots. Um, you know, Jackson Carmen left tackle was a, a second round pick, but Walker Parks coming in, got 200 snaps last season and, and is basically a five-star guy. Uh, you know, a year ago. So Clemson under under Davo Sweeney has done a great job of, of getting that second unit on the field, getting them playing time, you know, so so it's not going to be much of a stretch for some of these new guys coming in to, to take on bigger roles. They've recruited much, much better over the last few years. That defensive line is arguably the best in college football. They're number two behind Ohio State in our talent rankings, but uh, it, it's very, very close and basically, you know, uh, negligible, the, the difference between the two. The linebacker core is a top five unit, uh, or excuse me, top 20 unit. The, the front seven should be a top five 
uh, group. I mean, they're they're just solid, and and the gap between Clemson as the best team in the ACC and you know we'll talk about who's that that number two in our projections, but whether it's North Carolina, Miami, what have you, still still pretty big. And so Clemson is definitely the team to beat. You know, an undefeated regular season would not be a shock. Eleven and one seems like the absolute floor to me. Uh, and the way that you know DraftKings and a lot of other places set that win total, just one loss would do it. So I I would side on the you know on the under. I personally am not uh, going to run out and bet it. But coin flip against Georgia and then just something potentially could go wrong somewhere else. But this is absolutely a national championship contender, playoff contender, ACC favorite for sure. Xavier, I mean, it's hard to find the loss outside. Like this all comes down to a September 4th game against Clemson or against Georgia for Clemson. It seems that is such an enormous game for them. As Nick mentioned, you know, solid units all the way around. Seems like uh, Nick maybe uh, called their defensive backs unathletic. Don't don't know yeah, if uh, Clemson fans are going to enjoy that. But, uh, you know, uh, this is a great team that will compete for a national championship again this year, even with a loss to Georgia early. But that might be the only possibility for a loss for this team on the schedule. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that we're really you're really pulling at straws when you're talking about what, you know, Clemson could possibly do this year as far as a losing aspect. Uh, but I will say, when you, when you look at their schedule, the only issue I see is that the youth ends up becoming a problem. So in the Georgia game, you're absolutely right, Nick. I think they're, they're, they should be the favorite going into that game with the kind of defense that they're bringing back with Brian Breesey and Andrew Booth and company. Uh, offensively, though, they're young. You know, DJ Uyangalele is young. They, their receiving core, as great as they look during their, uh, their spring game, are a bunch of guys, for the most part, that haven't had, you know, the most reps at the receiver position, you know, EJ Williams had a really breakout year last year. Uh, Frank Ladson's a guy who has to take that next step, but these are both guys who only started four games last year. Uh, you know, so you know, with Justin Ross really being the most senior guy on their team, but we, his health is in question. So, you know, with that being the case, youth may be the only reason why Clemson loses that first ball game. You know, the, the, the atmosphere and sometimes with youth, people try, people press. We saw it a lot of, uh, in DJ's first game against Notre Dame. He was pressing in that first half. It's a good experience finally, for him, though. Yeah. You know, he finally settled down in that second half and, you know, almost uh, brought them back. But the youth is what ended up being the reason why they lost that game. You know, they just didn't have enough in the tank to make that, you know, that entire comeback. It was almost the reason why they lost to Boston College the week next uh, because of, of a slow start. So that's really my only concern with them as far as their schedule is concerned uh, is, you know, will they always be able to start fast when you have a guy like a Trevor Lawrence what people forget about is not just the fact that he's as talented as he is but when you're a, a junior a senior you treat every game like it's you treat every game as you know with the importance of a national championship because you <clears throat> you understand the future goal maybe with some of these younger guys maybe they overlook some games uh, Clemson Clemson's had a really rough history or up and down history going to NC State you know this is a team that you know I believe during Trevor Lawrence's time, almost lost a game at NC State uh, to Ryan Finley. I think there's another game in the last that's escaping me that they almost got upset by NC State on a wide, on a missed field goal, and then they won it in overtime. So NC State has been a rough patch for them. Uh, so that's a bit of a trap game uh, uh, up in Raleigh, uh, especially with Boston College being in the very next ball game. That could be a game that you know for some of these young guys, maybe they overlook. Maybe they don't play it as seriously. Looking at the Boston College team, that might be you know that might be 
deemed as a better team early on in the preseason, we never know. So those are the only real things that you're looking at for Clemson to possibly fall short of their ultimate goal of, a, of another college football playoff appearance slash national championship appearance. Um, but when we talk about a team like Clemson, we're obviously talking about their national championship and what they look like when, uh, against the field, uh, against the other top 25 teams in the country and what they may look like in a national championship setting. Uh, I think we really won't have that answer until really late on in the year because of the fact of how young this team is. Uh, you're going to see ebbs and flows week in and week out. Um, and some position groups are going to step up one week. Some position groups aren't going to step up the next week. That's kind of what happens when you have youth, even though they're talented consistency is, is what is, is going to be a major key for them throughout the year. Um, but, you know, 11 wins for Clemson should be a formality at this point. You know, so just because it's 11 and a half, I'm going to go under uh, just because the possibility of the, there's more possibility of losing a game, in my opinion, at this point than there is, you know, going undefeated uh, just with the, with George on their schedule. And with, uh, like I said, a couple of trap games that I, I, I put that are early on in the season, but if they navigate those well and they, Finish off the first half of their season five and zero. There's nobody on the rest of their schedule that I think competes with them. You know, maybe Louisville's better than we thought, but outside of that, I don't really think there's anybody else on that schedule that can really compete with them on that level. On the recruiting trail, Clemson is Clemson, number five in the country, number one in the ACC. Uh, they bring in five stars and four stars from around the country. Heck, the 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 most recruits they had last year from were from the state of Georgia, the state of Florida, and the state of North Carolina. South Carolina is not even in the top five, so they 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 you know they're one of the best recruiters in the country. Dabo is one of the best recruiters, uh, recruiting head coaches in the country as well, and they just keep doing what they're doing on the recruiting trail. They'll be fine. Let's go over to our lowest ranked ACC team now and talk about Duke and uh, Duke last season. They started on four, got a win. And then uh, ended on an 0 and 4 game losing streak, a four game losing streak in, in which they allowed an average of 54 points per game. Uh, they were 2 and 9, 1 and 9 in conference. Uh, we have them at 3 and 9 this year. Their DK total is 4. So interesting there. We have them favored to win two. Town edges in four. But the big question here, Nick, to, to me is. Uh, we have them ranked 120, which would be the lowest P5 team behind Kansas, who is getting a new coach, and uh, behind Arizona, who was terrible last year. So is Duke really the worst P5 team? That's a, a big question here. What do you think about uh, Duke for 2021? Yeah, the, the being the lowest ranked P5 team in our, our team strength power rankings, that was a little bit of a surprise once you did the most recent update. And, and you know, part of that was projecting uh, team performance, offense and defensive team performance for this season. And, you know, Duke, just based on recent results and sort of the way things are trending, that that really hurt them. Last year was, uh, you know, they, they did win two games and, and got a uh, got an ACC win against Syracuse, but otherwise it was pretty, pretty disastrous overall. I mean, the, the turnover numbers were just uh, crazy bad, like worst in the country by a mile. And, you know, some of that, of course, can can be attributed to the quarterback. Chase Bryce had a really, really rough uh, one year, you know, as the starter there at Duke. Um, but it's just, you know, there, there are there's some issues there. Things just aren't quite 
moving in the right direction. Recruiting hasn't hasn't been moving in the right direction. Uh, David Cutcliffe deserves a ton of respect for what he's done at, at Duke during his tenure, uh, basically bringing a program back from you know left for dead, basically, and turned them into a very competitive, consistent, you know, bowl caliber team. But now it seems like we're on the other side of that, where you know things are are potentially you know getting getting back to that point where this is one of the worst uh football teams in, in the country and uh there was a a quote in uh one of the preseason magazines one of those you know anonymous coaches quotes that put it i think really well um said in part this is a roster that wasn't good last year but the good players they did have are gone so you're now building off experience and you don't have areas of strength and I mean that that's true. I mean Duke uh, is, you know, the, the lowest rated team in roster strength in uh, the ACC by a by a pretty big margin. They're 86th in roster strength nationally, 93rd on offense, 78th on defense. All three of those are worst in the ACC. The next closest uh, overall is Syracuse at 63. So we're talking about 23 spots. On offense at Syracuse at 66. So again, we're talking, you know, almost 30 spots. And then the next closest defensively is Boston College at 64. So, you know, a little closer there, but still 15 spots nationally. Uh, the difference between Duke and, and the closest, least talented ACC team. And then you look at, you know, and, and this kind of is, is there's a little bit of crossover here, but uh, returning production, Duke is 124th nationally overall, 116th on offense and 126th on defense. The overall and, and defense are the lowest in the ACC. Offense is second lowest behind only Clemson. So, yeah, I mean, they they are not only, you know, playing shorthanded or, or at least, you know, have the least talented team on the field in every conference game, uh, but they're working in a lot of new guys and, and the talented guys that they have. Duke had four guys drafted last year. Three of them played defense, two on the, the defensive line. They had a couple other guys sign as undrafted free agents on, you know, offensive players. So from a, a two-win team to lose guys of that caliber, man, I mean, what what's what's left? And, and really the building blocks for me offensively, Mateo Durant, one of the better running backs in the ACC. Very impressive. Didn't even start last year, but was the leading rusher. Showed explosiveness, uh, and, and you know he's somebody I think you can build around, especially as you're transitioning again at the quarterback position. Gunnar Holmberg has been in the system for several years, even though you know uh, Cutcliffe uh, took over play calling duties last year, then gave him up this year. There's still consistency within the offense because you know the new co-offensive coordinators have been promoted from within. That doesn't always work out, but you know. You've got a quarterback coming in who's got you know familiarity with the system, uh, and so maybe that's something again you you can build around. Uh, Luca Diamond, the, the backup quarterback, I think is uh, you know does have athleticism that could potentially you know give them another level, give them another weapon to work with. Holmberg is you know athletic can can hurt you on the ground a little bit more than Bryce could, but Diamond I think is is the more dynamic of the two. So it'll be interesting to see if he's able to challenge for that job you know uh, over the the course of uh, the year. But 
it, 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 you know, at receiver, you lose probably arguably your, your biggest weapon in Noah Gray, the tight end. Jalen Cal- Calhoun is, is somebody who, uh, you know, they've leaned on as, as experienced, but I was reading in the PFF preview, basically he was only used on, on screens. Like that was his entire uh, value. The, the value that he added uh, was on screens. And, and, you know, Duke ranked 101st in deep pass percentage last year. Are they going to be able to, to, you know, stretch defenses? Are they going to be able to tack downfield? The offensive line has to improve. They were 118th last year in O-line team performance. They're bringing in three transfers, you know, at least at least one of which is probably going to end up starting. But, you know, they might have two guys uh, who are transfers from the FCS level come in and, and start on the offensive line. They do get Jack Willaball, their, their you know, solid center, uh, highest rated in our VGR Plus individual player ratings. He's he's back from missing all of last year with an injury, but I'm not sure that's going to be enough. You know, he, him and a couple of FCS transfers, are we going to see a major improvement? But my biggest concern is up front defensively. I mean, they, you know, Duke ranked 63rd in our D-line performance ratings last year, had some really talented pass rushers and Chris Rumpf, who was drafted in the fourth round and Victor DiMichege, who was drafted in the sixth round, you know, both those were, those were two really uh, dangerous guys coming off the edge and they lost both of them. Plus Drew Jordan, who transferred to Michigan state and in the interior, Derek Tangelo, who transferred to Penn state. They also lost a starting safety in the transfer portal, Marcus Waters. So, you know, defensively, I have major concerns. I mean, against the run, they ranked 125th in defensive team performance last season, 94th overall. You know, the the pass defense was the strength, and it ranked 65th, but you lose so much from your pass rush. You lose several guys in the the secondary. I know they've got a couple of guys coming back from injury, but, man, I you know, to to get back to the original question, does Duke deserve to be the lowest-ranked P5 team? You could certainly make an argument for Kansas. We'll find out soon enough because Duke actually plays Kansas in, in week four. But after we did that update, and, and some of it might be, uh, you know, a little bit inflated because Lance Leopold had great success at Buffalo, especially last year in, in our team performance ratings. But right now, I, I kind of believe it. I think that this Duke team will win two games for sure. Uh I just don't know exactly which two. Can they beat Charlotte? Yes, they blew them out last year. That was that was the, like the one impressive Duke game last year. But right now we have Charlotte as the most narrow of favorites. NCANT is a solid FCS program. That is not a guaranteed win. We have Duke favored by more than two touchdowns, but you know they've struggled in the past sometimes with with a team like NCANT. That's not a surefire thing. Northwestern. Our numbers are lower on Northwestern than anybody in the country that I've seen. And we have Northwestern favored by uh, by a touchdown. Kansas, I mean, Duke is favored by, you know, a little bit, but it's basically a toss-up. And, and then in ACC play, they are a touchdown underdog or more in every game. Only one team, actually, Georgia Tech, who they play at home October 9th, is uh, favored by less than two touchdowns. So, I mean, it's it's – setting up to be a really, really long season for Duke. And David Cutcliffe has overperformed 
certainly in the past. There are, there are several teams this year that our projections are low on where there are head coaches who have a track record of overachieving or, or getting you know less talented teams, uh, doing more with less. So I'm nervous about it. But right now, for me, every sign is pointing toward Duke being a t- you know two and ten type team. I mean, I, I was I think a little bit yeah, put down three and nine as as uh, the official prediction, just because you know totaling everything up at, at the, the projected win totals uh, or, or win percentages get them to three. I personally think this is more of a, a two and ten team. I mean, Xavier, I've never heard Nick rail on a team for 10 minutes straight before. And that was uh, that was rough to listen to if you're a Duke fan. He did give a glimmer of hope at the end saying, hey, look, we know Cutcliffe uh, has overperformed before and he's taken talent where we don't see it and, and made it work. But uh, what do you think of Duke? It's it's hard to see them get into this total. Yeah, no, uh, I'm going to be a lot shorter than Nick, probably just as harsh. Uh, I, four wins for me would be overachieving to be quite honest uh you look at their schedule and outside of charlotte and north carolina a and t and like we said the battle of the bottoms in 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 kansas that's it that's it that's 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 your three possible wins yeah who knows they may they may come to play against you know a a wake forest team on the road and give them a game after a bye week on October 30th. You know, maybe they, that, that two weeks to prepare for Wake Forest gives them a better opportunity of winning that ball game. But when you're talking about a, a Duke team that has had talent come in year after year, and, and it, it just really looks like it has not been working for like the last three years. Duke has just not been able to put a team together that competes at a high, at, at even a, a middling level to make them irrelevant in the conference. You know, they, they bring in a four-star in Chase Bryce. That fails. They bring in a guy in Chris Rumpf, who we all said at the beginning of the year was a dark horse or was a guy who could be a, a, an all-ACC guy. Wasn't in it. So, I, you know, when you bring in this kind of talent, like Nick alluded to, and you lose that talent, and now you're back to, you know, I'm not going to say back to square one, but you are, you know, almost, you know, closer to the bare bones of what you had last year. It, there's a lot of areas where you just are, are looking for some type of positivity. So if you're a Duke fan, hey, you're watching these games not necessarily for the you know for the win or loss record. At the end of the day, you're looking for these games to see what position groups are playing you know better week in and week out. Maybe the receivers look better this week. Maybe the DBs look better this week. You know, and the other issue with Duke, and this is back to my old adage. Their defense is a lot of senior-laden guys. They've got a lot of juniors at the linebacker position. Their secondary is pretty much all seniors and juniors. Uh, the only place that they have real youth is up front. And, you know, Nick obviously talked about, you know, his, his concerns up front. I'm concerned about the rest of the defense. You know, when you look at the defense, you're looking at a, the, the, the the guys up front are young. You're almost expecting them to not have the, you know, the consistency week in and week out to compete at a high level. But your linebackers and your corners – that are there for three and four years, you know, and some of them, you know, are there for a fifth year with the added year. Now they are guys that you expect to be, you know, that you can lean on week in and week out. And I don't think any Duke fan could tell me right now that they have the defense in which they can lean on whatsoever. And that's the, the most concerning part about it for me. You know, you guys talked about the last four games last season. That was all with these guys and they're back for more. And for me, unless they make a, you know, what does the old garbage do? Just stinks, just stinks worse. Just stinks worse. And so for me, if they don't make a significant step in this offseason, you know, getting better and 
hell, just competing. Sorry, but 40-plus points for four straight games is ridiculous. I, no defense at any level should be doing that. You know, middle school shouldn't be doing that. You know, and these guys are on scholarship to be doing it week in and week out. They've got to make a step. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, if we talk about athletes sometimes carrying their pride, their pride is at stake here. It's going to be questioned in the offseason. I'm sure there's plenty of articles written about Duke football and that defense of how bad it was to end 2020. Uh, so they, they've got to be better. Uh, but even with that being the case and with that being a possibility, three wins maximum for Duke this year. Um, as far as them on the recruiting trail, they're not as bad as people may think. They still are a top 60 team in recruiting, ranked 58th uh, in 2021, uh, 13th, uh, which is not dead last in the ACC. Uh, so, you know, they're not as bad even with the academic constraints uh, at Duke. They still are a pretty good recruiter when you think about uh, how academically rigorous that school is. Um, they're still able to to bring in some pretty good guys. Um you know, and are able to actually bring in, you know, a good amount of guys from the state of Georgia, which is a plus for them as well. So, but three wins max for them. And I want to ask you guys both this question. Is there any chance that Cutcliffe's on any kind of hot seat whatsoever? Hmm. I just feel like he's one of those guys that like Duke is like, can we get better? Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Nick. Hot seat? No, I don't think so. I, I think Duke is the type of program, and Cutcliffe is the is the type of coach where you sort of say he should be able to go out on his own terms. But I think we might be pretty close to him deciding. You know what? Maybe I maybe I should hand it over to uh, you know to somebody who who's got a uh, little more youth, a little more. Uh, I mean, I don't know if energy is the right word, but Cutcliffe and some of the the you know, things that the social media teams put out seems like he's still got a lot of energy, but uh, you know, he's getting up there a little bit in age and things aren't trending in the right direction. So I think within the next year or two, potentially, especially if this year is, is as bad as I think it could be uh, that he might decide to walk away. Yeah. It's one of those things where if they're getting blown out uh, the first couple games of the year, you know, or losing games are supposed to win on a slate where you're only supposed to win four games. Uh, it might be where they just both decide it's time for him to go. But uh, I would expect a decision like that to come after the season. With that, let's go over to Florida State, uh, who ranks 65, not what we're used to seeing from Florida State, uh, because for 41 straight seasons 41 consecutive years they had a winning record but now they've had three straight losing records they were three and six last year uh that this was the worst year in florida state history from what i remember um we don't have them improving a ton this year we've got them under 500 again at five and seven their dk total is five and a half we have them favored to win three town edges in seven so nick how do we fix Florida State, uh, and can they do it this year? I, I, I don't know if I've got – I certainly don't have Florida State figured out, uh, and I, I don't make that sort of claim about a lot of teams to, to really have them figured out, but I don't, I don't have a great read, and it's easy to, to say, oh, you know, 2020 was so weird, and it was the first year under, under a new head coach, and they've had three head coaches in the last – four years or whatever. And, and so, you know, how much could we learn uh, with so many disruptions last year? So, you know, so little uh, prep time in the spring together and summer and, and all of that. 
but I, I found myself prior to sort of diving into Florida State uh, over the last week, I, I thought I was going to come out with a much more negative view than I do. I, I came to the end sort of as, you know, coming out of, of the research and ready to, to discuss Florida State. I feel a little more optimistic than I expected. And, and they are only 65th in our power rankings. We do project uh, uh, a losing season. Part of that is a pretty difficult schedule. I mean, the 25th ranked schedule in the country is, is uh, you know, top two in the ACC. Only Georgia Tech has a tougher schedule, according to our calculations. So, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Starting off against Notre Dame, playoff team last year, even though they replaced a lot of uh, pieces, as we discussed last time, uh, that's that's difficult. Uh, they've struggled a little bit with FCS opponents. Jacksonville State last year was leading at halftime, and they play them in week two. And then, you know, kind of jumping into ACC play, Wake Forest, manageable, maybe Louisville, you know, coming off a, a tough year, Syracuse. Okay, maybe you can, maybe you can build a little momentum there, but – uh, the second half is, is other than UMass, pretty brutal. And, and then North Carolina in the middle as well, even though they did beat North Carolina last year. But there, there were a couple of notes, and I know that recently, based on some of the things that, that they've tweeted and, and some of their lists have gotten people all riled up. Uh, so, you know, not everybody loves PFF. I get that. But I, I think they do some really interesting things and some things that people – don't do or, or don't have the ability to, to really dig in. So I, I like when they, you know, when I come across notes like this in their write-ups or, or in their preview or whatever. Uh, but one thing that I saw, there were only three Power 5 teams that ran more unbalanced formations than Florida State last year. And with 27% uh, of, of screens in the passing game, uh, Florida State led FBS in the uh, the amount of, of uh, passing plays that were screens. And so on the one hand, you know, you think, okay, unbalanced formations, that's, that's uh, just something, I mean, it, it definitely has value, but, but in its most basic uh, way of thinking about it or, or that I do, it's, you kind of want to trick your opponent, right? You kind of want to get them, have them struggle to get lined up and maybe you can steal a big play here or there. Uh, and, you know, screens, you don't really want, I don't think, to, to lead the nation in screens. But then what that tells me, and, and similar to the unbalanced formations aspect of it, it tells me, okay, Mike Norvell and his offensive coaching staff is, is uh, looking at, you know, their game planning situation or, or their in-game play calling and thinking, okay, we're limited here. We've got Jordan Travis who can run passing suspect. We've got some talented running backs, Deshaun Corbin, Lawrence Tefili, who's I think one of my favorite sort of up and coming running backs. Uh, we've got an offensive line that has struggled. You know, uh, pass protection is is still an issue. They got better as a run blocking unit last year, but what we need to do something to find some success. So hey, unbalanced formations. You know, let's throw in some tempo here and there. Uh, try to keep you know catch people napping, catch them off guard where they can't get lined up. And hey, let's get the ball to the running backs out of the backfield. Let's screen up. You know, let's 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 just try to get the ball in the hands of our playmakers and see if something can happen. So I took that as a little bit of a good sign that that the offensive coaching staff and I think we all were 
pretty high on Mike Norvell as a play caller, as an offensive mind at Memphis. And it was difficult to see uh, maybe a lot of optimism in, in sort of the offense that Florida State ran last year. I mean, they ranked 100, uh, 110th overall in team performance, 98th in offensive team performance, 122 in passing offensive team performance. But they, they tried to do the best that they could to get, you know, get some big plays. And, and uh, Tofili is, is somebody who does have big play potential. He had 10 carries uh, of 10 or more yards in only 37 rushing attempts last year. He also had 10.8 yards after the catch. Uh, so, hey, you've got a, a, a backup running back who's one of your best 11 players. Find ways to get him involved. Find ways to, to make some big plays. They're going to be relying on a lot of newcomers at uh, wide receiver. They brought in Andrew Parchment from Kansas, who had a, a really solid year in 2019. Uh, not as good last year, but uh, they've got you know two or three freshmen who will, you know, at least one looks like Malik McLean might actually be a starter day one. And then a couple of guys who, who are probably going to be uh, in the mix, getting getting snaps, getting the ball. Uh, I liked what I saw Ja'Kai Douglas last year. He's one of those running back wide receiver hybrids that you know Memphis had a ton of success with under Norvell. So you know how's he going to get involved? And and uh, he had a big game against Duke in the the season finale, kind of uh, helped them end on a high note last year. So you know I, I think there are some reasons to be a little bit optimistic about the direction of the offense. The defense, in my opinion, was the biggest underachieving unit in the country last year, and it wasn't wasn't even close. I mean, in our roster strength numbers, they were in the top 10 in a lot of categories, a lot of units overall. Uh, they still have a, a defense that ranks 28th in roster strength. But in team performance, they were 114 overall defensively, 104 against the pass, 111 against uh, the run. And – is it going to get better because they lost three, uh, four defensive starters who were drafted, and then Marvin Wilson, who we thought had you know all American potential, thought looked like a draft uh, a lock to get drafted this time last year, ends up going undrafted as a free agent, but you know still talented, and they are just charging into the transfer portal to to kind of fill some of those holes. Pass rush was dreadful last year. They were able to bring in Jermaine Johnson from, from Georgia, uh, install him as a, an edge rusher, defensive end. He looks like the best player, or, or you know, the spring reports we saw in the spring game, all that looked like the best player on the team. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, since he wasn't even really a full-time starter at Georgia. And then they lost, uh, uh, you know, Emmett Rice was a starting linebacker. They lost him to a significant injury this spring and, and he's out indefinitely. So there are a lot of moving parts on, on the defense. They seem to be at least on paper, a little less talented. I, I have my concerns defensively, but you know, that combined with a, a tough schedule, I think it's going to be difficult to see a real big step forward in the win column, but I like enough of what I saw offensively. If Jordan Travis, you know, continues to progress as a quarterback. And then the name I haven't even mentioned, Mackenzie Milton, who it sounds like a lot of people expect to be the starter, assuming he's he's fully healthy and, and ready, you know, if they can, can figure out the quarterback position, can have a few, you know, receivers step up and, and that offensive line makes a little bit of progress 
protecting the passer, this is going to be a, a good offense, I think. I just think the defense is going to be pretty bad. And, and playing a lot of good teams, Florida State's going to have to win a lot of shootouts. And I'm not sure, you know, because I'm not 100% sold on how fully healthy Milton is until I see him, you know, on the field. I, I hope he is. Uh, and then Travis can be dynamic, make a lot of plays as a runner, needs to improve a lot as a passer. But if they get one of those guys set in and, and they continue to, you know, put their guys in situations where they can be successful, I think this offense is going to be a lot of fun to watch. And I think Florida State games are going to be pretty high scoring. But I think the ceiling on this team is, is you know, getting back to a bowl. I think, I think six or seven wins is kind of the best case scenario. But five wins, as, as we project, seems the most likely result. Yeah, Xavier, I mean, Florida State, you're just, it's kind of perplexing. You know, uh, obviously they recruit well, they have talent on this team, but they have not put it together for three straight years now. Uh, you know, Jimbo leaving was obviously a big blow for them. Uh, do you think they can improve this year and, and uh, take a step towards getting right? Or do you think this is going to be another disappointing year for the Seminoles? It's going to be disappointing for the fan base, I think, because at the end of the day, where they see Florida State being and where they actually are are in two different veins. Um, I think Florida State fans want them to be an ACC title contender. I think realistically, this is at best a seven-win ball club. Um, so in that regard, I think it is a step forward. You know, last year was pretty abysmal for them um, as a team, and I think that this year they take necessary steps. Uh, the biggest concern with me, as Nick alluded to, is that is that quarterback room. Who comes out of that quarterback room? consistently being able to be the starter. Um, my problem, my concern with Mackenzie Milton is with all the talent, you know, is their offensive line going to be able to hold up? And is he going to be able to hold up for, for 12 games physically? This will be the first season he's played in two years. Uh, Jordan Travis is an amazing athlete, but how good is a, of a quarterback is he? Those are two different things. Uh, completely two different dynamics and how good is he going to be able in that regard. Uh, their schedule, for me, it is manageable. I think the I think the second half of the year is a little bit more difficult for them as they have to do obviously see Clemson, NC State, Boston College, and Florida State in the second half of the of the year. So I think if you're going to be a team that if they do get over that five and a half uh, win mark that they have uh, for DK, it's going to have to be because they win four out of their first five, uh, or excuse me, five out of, uh, four out of their first six. And I don't know if they're necessarily going to be able to do that. I, I, I Notre Dame for me is going to be a loss for them. Jacksonville State's a win. I think at Wake Forest is a win. Uh, but then we get touchy. I think Louisville is a team that they can absolutely lose to. I think Louisville would be the favorite going into that ball game. Uh, Syracuse, they should win with that game, especially being at home. They have to go to uh, North Carolina. Uh, they should beat UMass. Uh, they And then, like I said, it, it comes down to those last five games where you've got Clemson, NC State, Miami, at Boston College, and at Florida. Uh, and, and that, I, I genuinely think they could, they could absolutely end up going one and four, and that would be a really bad taste in the, in the mouth of FSU fans going down, uh, down the stretch and going into the offseason. Uh, I think that this team can be a bold team. I just offensively and especially, and this is something I saw in the spring game when I was watching it, they just look really small this year. Um, so I don't know as far as durability is concerned. I don't know if their, their strength and conditioning coaches changed or they're just not recruiting as talented as they were, but you know, you know, they still finished 22nd in recruiting, which although this year was fourth in the ACC, they just didn't look like they had the the freaks of nature that they typically have. Even when Florida State was bad, they still had guys like Marvin Wilson, you know, just 
big guys. You know, uh, Kendo was another one that was a freak of nature that at the very least you looked at Tamori and Terry, you know, uh, you, you know, we talked about him a lot last year that even though they maybe didn't come win and loss when they, when you looked at them, they passed the eye test uh, at the very least when you watched them line up in the, in the, in the spring game, they looked like, you know, Memphis, of, you know, Memphis of Florida, really, they, they look like a smaller team that Mike Norvell was going to have to, you know, be a little bit more tricky, a little bit more, you know, give a little bit more eye candy to, to maybe win these games as opposed to just being able to physically oppose their will like they were able to do in the past. Uh, so I think this is a team that can still win six games. I think it's going to be a grinding of six wins to do so. Um, and it's going to be really touch and go. There's going to be a lot of toss up games. Uh, but any if, if Michael Novell can get to a bowl game this year, that is a huge step in the right direction. Uh, if he misses a bowl game this year, then the, then the heat goes, you know, then the, the seat goes from, you know, mild to a little bit warmer, um, especially when, you know, if, if for another year in a row, Deion Sanders has a great year as a coach, that seat's going to get a little warmer just, just because of the fact that you have the obvious uh, connection between him and Florida State. Florida State's not going to uh, allow itself to be a, a bottom feeder for for too much longer with the same guy at the helm. Uh, they'll change coaching staff before they, you know, before anything else. So, bowl game for for Mario Barrow, it's bowl game or bust. Really, it, it, how you have how he has to look at it or how he has to go into this year. Now we go to what might be Nick's favorite team in the ACC. Remember, we talked last year, and he is very bullish on the future. At uh, Georgia Tech, we'll see if it's now. Probably not, since they are the second worst ranked ACC team here for us, behind Duke. But uh, they lost five of six to finish three of seven. And uh, uh, though the win total was the same, they showed improvement in Jeff Collins' uh, second season as head coach. Their DK number is four and a half. We have them at four and eight. Uh, favorite to win three. Talent edges in six. And another question from CK, he asked if Jameer Gibbs, uh, he was great as a freshman for Georgia Tech, but Jordan Mason was great in 2019 and pretty good battling through injuries last season. So do we think this is just going to Gibbs or do you think we're, we're going to see a split in that backfield? And what do we think of Georgia Tech for 2021, Nick? Yeah, uh, first off, I there's a if, if you're new uh, listening to us or – uh, maybe didn't listen to our, our previews last year. I think I said something along the lines, got a little too excited that I thought Georgia Tech, that, that the way that they were recruiting, uh, maybe in a few years could could challenge Clemson. Uh, I have cooled a bit on <laughs> that. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've got some exciting players, and Jameer Gibbs is at the very top of that list. He is maybe my favorite running back in college football. I mean, I just, I love watching him. Uh, I, I think he is just so, you know, exciting, dynamic, athletic, whatever, whatever all the, uh, you know, severely overused words are, uh, that's him. I mean, he, he is arguably, and, and some of the, the PFF statistics back it up, uh, maybe the best pass catching running back in college football or, or was last year uh, breaking tackles is, is among the, the nation's leaders and in, in broken tackle percentage. Uh, he is a potential superstar. And, and so, you know, that's, that's first off. Uh, and, and to CK's point, you know, he was somebody who came in and as a true freshman immediately proved to be their best player, but to his other point, Jordan Mason, is 
pretty high on that list too, especially when healthy. And, and he's a guy that uh, a couple of years ago was, was uh, very productive. They've got, you know, depth at that position as well. In addition to Mason and Gibbs, Dante Smith, uh, flashed at times as kind of a, a third guy. Uh, Jameis Griffin was basically Jameer Gibbs before Jameer Gibbs. He was like the first high-profile four-star player to, to sign with Jeff Collins and, and Georgia Tech. So running back is absolutely a strength. And, you know, it's a top 25 unit in our talent ratings. Uh, the, the problem is the offensive line last year was – bad i mean you know i i think our 98th uh ranking and in, in o-line performance might be a little low or there might be a little high that that seems high i i thought this was a team you know 110s maybe even 120s uh as far as offensive line play what my eyes told me so you know they've they've got a lot of room for improvement up front and they're also going to need some help, one from Jeff Sims, who, who uh, is, again, you know, another uh, player who's dynamic on the ground, can do a ton of exciting things with the ball in his hand, but as a passer has a long way to go, uh, you know, at least compared to, to what we saw last year. The interception number, you know, at the end of the year, it, it looks bad, 13 interceptions. Eight of those came in the first three starts. But he also, you know, struggled at times to take care of the football. Uh, you know, with fumbles, Georgia Tech was the, had the second most turnovers in, in college football last year. Part of that was fumbles, in addition to interceptions. Uh, but also, they're going to need somebody to step up at receiver, and they've got experience. Malachi uh, Carter, Adonica Smith are, are returning starters. They also have a returning starter and tight end, uh, Dylan Devaney. They're bringing in a transfer from. Northwestern and Kyrick McGowan. So, you know, there, there seem to be guys who could uh, make plays and, and take a little pressure off of those running backs. But, you know, nobody has, has quite been able to jump up and, and be a go-to guy, be a producer at that receiver position. So, you know, need Sims to, to progress as a passer, somebody else, you know, give him somebody to work with as a weapon on the outside and that'll take a little, you know, that'll make it so they're not running into such heavy boxes uh, with Gibbs, with with uh, Mason. They have to, I think, be a little bit more creative with how they get Gibbs involved. Uh, using him as a, a, you know, a pass catcher out of the backfield is, is certainly uh, a, a good sign. And, and they did that, but they were among the lowest teams in college football and screen percentage, 107th in the number of screens that they called. So can utilize that a little bit more, move him around a little bit, maybe put him in the slot more Two running back sets, I think would be uh, a, a good direction to go. But some of it is, you know, they just have to get a little bit better up front. They brought in Devin Cochran, a, a grad transfer from Vanderbilt. He sat out last year, but should slot into uh, the left tackle position. They've got a couple of other starters who could end up uh, pushing force or, or a couple of other transfers rather that, that, uh, it could be pushing for starting spots. So, you know, personnel wise, they're attempting to address it, but that I think is, is the biggest issue and the biggest concern for me for Jameer Gibbs really becoming one of the best running backs in college football. I've heard some you know whispers, seen some quotes that the coaching staff wants to build the offense around Gibbs. If they do that, I'm, I'm, 
back on you know board optimistically but uh jeff collins hasn't hasn't won you know six and 16 there uh their offensive coordinator ranks 122nd in our oc rankings uh collins ranks 110th as a head coach and the you know they of course didn't inherit a a perfect roster uh but you know they they've had time now now they need to to win more ball games they need to actually translate some of the talent they brought in into uh wins and i i want to uh before i go just very quickly on the defense on that note one of the things that i just read over and over and over and over and have for a while now is that transition that that jeff collins has done i want to challenge all of us not to use i think we already did once this this episode but let's not use the the words triple option ever again when it comes to Georgia Tech because it's they've had two full years they've had three recruiting classes let's stop talking about the transition from the triple option it's over and done with they need to win games the defense needs to get better too the defensive line 101st in our performance rankings uh talent numbers are good not great 40th in that range overall they're 35th in, in defensive roster strength the secondary on paper should be very good. It was an underperforming unit last year. The pass rush needs to get better. They do at least have options. Jordan Dominic uh, looked good at, at times, was productive, uh, you know, getting getting a lot of pressure. Jared Ivey looks like he could be a breakout performer. They brought in Keon White as a transfer from Old Dominion who did some good things there. Antonius Clayton, transfer from Florida, Hasn't been on the field as much as they would like the last few years, but hopefully he's back and and fully ready to contribute. So, you know, I think they'll get a little bit better up there. They brought in Kevin Harris, the second, as a transfer from Alabama. He could contribute as a edge rusher or as a stand-up linebacker. They're, they're, they're trying to, to inject talent wherever they can transfer portal on the offensive line and on all three levels of the defense hasn't fully paid off yet, but, you know, I, I think I still think that that this is going to be an improved team. They do play a top ten, most difficult schedule in college football. It's just not. It's going to be very very difficult. I think for their continued improvement to actually translate into many more wins. I think everything has to go right for Georgia Tech. Sims step up and, and become a much improved passer get you know the running game clicking on all cylinders gibbs becomes a superstar the defense takes a big step forward if all of that happens i think georgia tech can get to a bowl game but if one of those areas isn't uh you know a, a big improvement i i struggle to to see where this team gets more than four wins yeah and like nick said xavier i mean georgia tech has transition you know the offense is no longer that old offense since we have uh, been challenged to not say what it was but uh they're they're still they're still building it uh you know and um they're exciting but uh, i mean even our numbers just don't have them there yet so what do you think about georgia tech for 2021 yeah, they've got to definitely take some steps forward offensively. I think last year what you saw was obviously growing pains. Um, you know, we I think Jeff Sims is one of the most electrifying players in college football, not just at the quarterback position, but in general. I, I think that this year 
the skill positions have to now match the talent level of the quarterback. I think last year, a lot of the times you saw Jeff Sims literally run because he had to, because he didn't have anybody to throw to. And I think that this year, if they're going to make the, the necessary steps to start winning ball games, uh, like Jeff Collins said that he wants to start doing, it's going to be, you know, reliant on those guys that are uh, at receiver at tight end. You know, we talked about Jameer Gibbs to make, it make life easier for Jeff Sims. Last year, there were some games watching where it, it, it looked like Cam Newton in his first year with the Panthers. He was just having to do everything and, and figure out and having to do, you know, Houdini-like acts just to, you know, move the ball down the field. Obviously, that falls a lot on the offensive line as well, you know, giving him time in the pocket. But I think more so than anything, it was genuinely just he didn't have anybody to throw the football to. And he couldn't find anybody to go. And obviously, we know about the, you know, the three seconds that quarterbacks have in their head. For me, I would be at two and a half by the end of the season that he was having. You know, I, I was I would have been out of there. You know, with the athletic with the athlete that he is and the ability to move um, down the field with his legs. You know, he, he definitely began to rely on that way uh, a lot more down the stretch of last year's season. As far as their schedule is concerned, two 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 good games to start off the year. Uh, Northern Illinois and Kennesaw State are are, are not complete cupcakes. So they, they're really two games that are very winnable, but at the same time are going to get you prepared for the year. Uh, unfortunately, after that, they get Clemson and North Carolina right after that uh, in an away home. And, you know, so two and two is probably their start. Uh, from there, it's just about winning their toss-ups and, and being competitive on the defensive end. You know, sometimes a lot of times last year, my, one of my biggest concerns with Georgia Tech was the fact that, you know, they played one half of football or they would play a quarter or they were, you know, against U, uh, UCF in particular, they played a half of football. And then, or not even a half, but one and a half quarters. And, and UCF was able to, you know, score two touchdowns late in the in the, end of the fir- uh, first half and then score a touchdown to begin the third quarter. And that game was out of reach. And so consistency and just staying in games and staying competitive will be will go a long way in them getting more wins than they had last year. You know, I think the ACC is worst in a lot of in, in the middle this year, in my opinion, in some in some respects. Uh, so games against Pitt, you know, uh, uh, Virginia, Virginia Tech, these are games that they need to be competitive in and need to make uh, clear strides to show that, you know, they're, they're on the upward, you know, an upward trajectory. And if they could do that, they're going to continue doing really well on the recruiting trail. Last year, they finished 27th uh, in 2020 in the recruiting trail this past year, a little bit worse, but it was COVID year, so I'll give them a break, uh, finishing 48th nationally and 11th in the ACC. But this is a team with them being in Georgia and with them being in Atlanta. And, you know, us Georgia fans, we talk about this all the time. If Georgia Tech actually became a consistently good football team, there's a lot of kids in the state of Georgia that will go to Georgia Tech. Uh, They are in the Midtown. They have, you know, great facilities. This is a team that, you know, outside of the academic restraints, kids want to play closer to home than having to go to Athens. There's a lot of kids in Atlanta. There's a lot of kids in in the surrounding counties that want to stay closer to home and don't necessarily have to go to Athens to do so. You know, it's only a 40 minute drive for me, but if you live in Atlanta, it's an hour, it's an hour and some change, you know, plus traffic. So if Georgia Tech became a team that was actually contending in the ACC or even close to contending in the ACC year in and year out on the recruiting trail, they, they would be a top 25 team in my personal opinion, uh, because of the resources that they have around them, probably in the, in my opinion, top three most, you know, or top three states and top three places that you could find high school football talent, Georgia Tech would really begin to, to turn this, to turn the tide as far as being not just a, you know, an academic school, but also having the, the big boy athletics and, and football and basketball to, to, to make them an, an all well-rounded school. Uh, but as far as their record is concerned next year, I think this is a team that can get over their four and a half. I think five wins would be exactly what I would have them 
uh, going into next year. Uh, I don't I don't know if they're a bowl team just yet. I don't know if that that consistency is there enough for me to say that they're going to win six or six plus ball games. But five wins, I believe, is is perfectly feasible for uh, for Georgia Tech going into next year. All right, let's bump over to Louisville. And Louisville finished strong, but they did take a step back last year in Scott Satterfeld's second season. They were uh, eight and five in 2019, four and seven last year, three and seven in conference. We have them at six and six. Uh, their, D, their DK total is six and a half. Favorite to win seven, Town Edges in five. What do we think about Louisville going into 2021, Nick? So Louisville is the team that keeps coming to mind when I'm thinking of Boston College because, uh, you know, it was the second year last year. They came out hot, big time rebound after the Bobby Petrino era ended, uh, went from two wins to eight wins and looked like a real team on the rise. Last year, they weren't really, you know, a much worse team. They certainly brought back uh, a, a ton of talented players. Multiple players ended up getting drafted a couple of wide receivers to do out well and, and Des uh, Fitzpatrick, other talented players as well, a lot of returning production, but the wins just, you know, didn't quite stack up. And, and some of it was luck, you know, turnover luck is, is a real thing. Uh, I was reading in, in the athletics state of the program about Louisville that, uh, you know, Coaches counted that they dropped nine interceptions on defense last year. And if some of those had gone the other way, if, if uh, defensive backs or linebackers were able to, to put those away, you know, maybe you're in a different spot because field position then is flipped. Maybe one or two of those goes to the house. Maybe you win a couple of close games that didn't go your way last season. And, you know, they lost by three to Pitt. Uh, they lost – by five to Notre Dame in a game they held Notre Dame to, to 12 points. And, and that was sort of a sort of a weird game. Uh, wasn't quite as, as you know, defensively as impressive as maybe it looks like uh, just in the final score. But, you know, they lost by one possession to Virginia Tech. They lost by one possession to Boston College. So, you know, sometimes in a second year, especially if your first year is is – uh, a really solid start, you know, things can happen and, and some bounces go the wrong way. And that seemed to, to kind of hit Louisville last year. And, and so that's just, you know, I keep, keep reminding myself of that when I'm thinking about a team like Boston college, but for, for Louisville specifically, their defense improved, uh, certainly improved statistically. Uh, their past defense was, was still a struggle. They ranked, uh, or excuse me, their rushing defense was, was still a struggle. They ranked 93rd against the run last season, but you know they they showed some uh, improvement on on that side of the ball, which was I think our biggest question coming into uh, the season. They had an explosive run game. They had you know 19.1 percent of their rushing attempts went for more than 10 yards. Uh, that was top four in the nation. They, you know, have some playmakers, even though they lost Fitzpatrick and, and Tutu Atwell and Javian Hawkins. You know, Malik Cunningham struggled a little bit holding on to the football last year. Uh, Double-digit interceptions, certainly a concern, but he's a guy who can be an all-ACC-type quarterback. He's a guy that can, uh, you know, create a big play himself or can get the ball to, to other playmakers and, and – Give Louisville a chance to score basically on, you know, any particular play. He's going to need 
a little bit of help, of course, has to replace a couple of, of key playmakers. Uh, and then the offensive line wasn't, wasn't great. They ranked 102nd in our O-line performance ratings last year. So, you know, even though Cunningham, I think, is, is definitely somebody that Louisville can build their offense around, uh, we're going to have to see some other guys step up and, and get him more protection, get him, you know, a few more playmakers. Jalen Mitchell, I know a lot of people are excited about as the potential, you know, uh, running back, uh, taking over as, as lead duties there. Hassan Hall has been an all-ACC return man. He's had some some good moments as a running back. And then they recruited a, a guy they're really high on, Travion Cooley, uh, you know, 88, almost 89-rated player, according to 247 Sports. Looks like maybe the, the running back of the future. And they just added Jawar Jordan, who uh, has had most of, of his success as a return man at Syracuse, but transferred in and, and you know, at least as a uh, high-end, you know, speed guy can can uh, do some things there. So I think they're going to be fine at running back, wide receiver. Braden Smith looks like sort of the de facto number one, but isn't quite, I think, to the level uh, that we're used to, where Tutu Atwell was one of the most, you know, one of the fastest. Uh, best playmakers in college football. And then Des Fitzpatrick, who is kind of a, in a lot of ways, a prototype NFL guy, a bigger body, uh, gave them two very different but but very effective receivers there. Smith, I think, has is, is got the inside track, but is Shy Works going to step up and, and be a guy? Is Jordan Watkins going to be a guy? Uh, they have a couple of, of true freshmen coming in that they like. I just don't know. So need to need to give Cunningham a little bit to work with offensively, but I think that the offense has a lot of promise. Scott Satterfield has a, a long history of success as a play caller, so I, I think they're going to be, uh, if not you know, much improved, I don't think we're going to see a huge, huge drop-off in Louisville on offense. I think they're going to be a top 40 uh, offense still. But defensively, you know, even though they made some – improvements last year there's one sort of glaring area of concern their corners are good Catrell clark was a transfer from liberty stepped in became an all acc type guy last year chandler jones very experienced 24 games started but behind those two you know the safety position and then they're too deep and basically the, the entire secondary uh it's so young and it's so, so many newcomers. They're probably going to start two transfers as starters at safety. Can Derek Duncan Jr. was a, a solid performer at Georgia Southern, built kind of like a linebacker and uh, is a guy who I think is, is going to have a, uh, you know, step in and, and be a playmaker, defensive playmaker for Louisville. But then Quintero Cole, an FCS transfer, looks like I think the other starter at safety. And other than Jamie Vance, a sophomore, uh, everyone else is a first-year player. We've got true freshmen as the uh, fourth and fifth corner on our sheet, a JUCO transfer as the fifth corner on our sheet, and then all three backup safeties, true freshmen. So, you know, corner, starting corner, probably fine, but they're going to be relying on a lot of new faces and a lot of inexperience at, at that unit. And they also, you know, lost some talented players uh, in the other two levels as well with Jared Goldwire, the nose tackle gone, Marlon Character is gone. 
at, at linebacker, they lost a couple of starters, Dorian Etheridge and Rajay Burns. So, I mean, it's it's uh, I've got some concerns for Louisville defensively, even though it seems like they've got a lot more to replace on offense, at least as far as big name guys. I've, I've got some personnel, some personnel concerns. I, I think that Ole Miss in week one is going to be very, very difficult for that young uh, secondary for that inexperienced pass rush. I mean, that, it's it's possible that could get ugly. We only have Ole Miss as about a, a seven-and-a-half-point favorite, but I'm, I'm not really liking what I'm seeing as far as how that matches up. And then we don't know what UCF is going to look like offensively, but they've got the talent to attack a, a secondary like that as well. So the all, you know the non-conference is not – doesn't, doesn't uh, stack up great. And then – the ACC, they play, of course, Clemson. They play NC State. They play Boston College back to back to back. It's it's going to be a bit of a bit of a tough road. So uh, I think it's it's very possible that Louisville gets you know out of that Clemson game November sixth, needing all three wins against Syracuse, Duke, and Kentucky in those last three weeks to get to a bowl. And so we do have them at six and a half wins. You know, six and six seems about right. But if they don't get some answers to some questions, whether it's offensive line, inexperience on defense, playmakers on offense, you know, it's a little bit of a struggle to see a big bounce back for me uh, for Louisville this year. Yeah, Xavier, I mean, with Louisville, uh, maybe they lost a lot of players, but at least the schedule's tough, right? That's kind of what we (laughs) do when we look at this team. So um, how do you think they're going to pan out this year? Yeah, it's going to be a rough year for Louisville. Um, their, their schedule is so daunting. You know, Nick talked about the Ole Miss game. He didn't even allude to the fact that they also have to see UCF in that same time period. You know, or, or two weeks later, that also for that young defense, you get two of the more high-powered offenses in college football, you know, two of your first three weeks into your iteration in college football. That's going to be tough. That's going to be rough. Um, I've also seen, and, you know, now Nick can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen this love for Malik Cunningham that I, I'm just not feeling. I just don't see the hype necessarily. Uh, I think this is a guy who, you know, his peak is maybe 27, 2,800 yards, 20 touchdowns, 25 touchdowns might be his peak. You know, last year he had, an, you know, an okay year, 2,600 yards, 20 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. Uh, that was actually, you know, worse as far as his touchdown interception ratio from 2019 where he had 22 touchdowns at five INTs. But for me, it's just, you know, you lose all that talent around you. And now you're the guy, you know, now it's going to be on Malik Cunningham's back to make a lot of these plays. And I'm not so sure he can do it. Um, you know, I, I would be, I'm hesitant to, to, you know, put him in that, that realm of one of the, you know, the better quarterbacks in the ACC. I have to wait. I'm just, I, it's going to be a wait and see for me, for him. Uh, you know, I, I think that going forward, there's a guy who has a lot of talent, but just hasn't had the consistency that I want from him and a guy who I would deem to be the quarterback that's going to help Louisville, you know, get to a place where they're, you know, uh, 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 a consistent bowl team or a solidified bowl team, you know, as DK would assume that they are, that they would have to be to be, you know, to to go over their win total, which is six and a half. He's going to have to be the guy week in and week out. There is no, you know, you know, he doesn't have the talent around him that he had last year that he can lean on in some of There's no Tutu Atwell. There's no Jalen Hawkins that he can just lean on to anymore. So I'm, I'm waiting and seeing what he does also on the outside, there's a lot of guys who are going to have to, to to man up this year. You know, you look at their receiving core, um, you know, a combined from all three of them that are currently on the list that we have, you know, eight games started from a combined. 
you know, outside of uh, Shy Wirtz, who obviously is a transfer from Georgia Southern, that's not a lot of games. And they're going to have to learn really quickly. You know, you play Ole Miss week one, you're going to have to win that game in a shootout fashion. You know, I, I think 90% of the Ole Miss's games are going to be shootout fashion. And so if you're going to ha- beat an Ole Miss team, you're going to have to be able to go with them and, and point for point. That's going to be a really difficult situation for them to have. I think Louisville is a bowl team. I'm going to go under. I think they win six games. Um, but they're going to have to really, you know, put together some runs here against their toss-up games. You know, they're going to have to win all three of their games against Florida State, Wake Forest, and Virginia. And like Nick said, they may, once again, have to go 3-0 and against Syracuse, Duke, and Kentucky uh, to get to that to the bowl game outside of their win against Eastern Kentucky. They don't really have many places in their schedule that they can have drop-offs uh, to really succeed this year because of how uh, packed in their 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 competitive games are when you have a Boston College, NC State, and a Clemson right off of your bye week. Uh, so I, I think Louisville's a bowl team. Six games is where I have them. I'm not going to go with the over. I'm going to go with the under on them. Let's go to the U. Miami finished 8-3 and three last season. Uh, they did lose their bowl to Oklahoma State. Derek King and Rhett Lashley sparked the offense, but the ACCLs were big. Um, we have them 10 overall. Their DK win total is nine. We've got them at 10 and two. Um, uh, favored to win 11. Town edges in 11 2. We did get a question here, and it was how much do the blowout losses to Clemson, 42 to 17, and North Carolina, 62 to 26. And they allowed 778 yards in that game matter for 2021. Can we expect the Hurricanes to compete given those recent results? And this is kind of a team that, uh, you know, Nick has, they win the ones they're supposed to, uh, but they lose the ones that they're uh, close in. And not only did they do that, but got stomped last year in two of those. So what are we, what are we looking at for the hurricanes in 2021? Yeah, we're not the only ones with that question. And, and uh, when the athletic talked to Manny Diaz earlier this summer, uh, he said the next step was to look like, you know, they're at their best against those top five, top 10 type teams, the Clemson's and, and the North Carolina's from last year. And, and it's interesting to me, and we're going to be talking about these two teams back to back, but Miami and North Carolina are teams that I know I am going to be paying very close attention to, uh, especially early on in 2021, because our projections are outliers specifically on North Carolina, but Miami a little bit too. We have Miami as the clear number two team in the ACC. And a lot of people would disagree with that. A lot of people think that North Carolina uh, should have that spot, uh, should be considered the top challenger to Clemson in the conference. But, you know, uh, the way we calculate things and and roster strength is uh, our, you know, talent metric, but it's also talent weighted for experience and production. And, And so, you can make a case against it. Maybe we don't do it the right way, but the way that we do it, Miami is pound for pound, just has a, as strong a roster as Clemson does. They are fourth in the country in roster strength, number five offensively, number three defensively. If you go unit by unit, you know, we, we give uh, roster strength numbers for uh, every individual position group for skill positions as a group on offense for the front seven and the back seven as groups on defense, all of those, the worst individual group in our rankings for Miami is 22nd. They're 22nd with running backs. They're 22nd at linebacker. 
everything else is top 15. They have a top 10 quarterback. That's We'll get more to that because there's a big if that goes with that. Uh, but they're number six at their wide receiver and tight end group. Number eight in skill positions. Number six on the offensive line. Talk about that a little too. Uh, top 20 defensive line, 13 front seven, uh, number two secondary, and then number four in the back seven. So, you know, we, we didn't have to beat this point in again uh, when we're talking about Florida State because they've seen a slip a little bit as far as the talent that they've got on hand. But, you know, with Miami, it is that. They've got the talent on hand. They've got NFL talent just about every position. Some of the guys maybe might have been a little, you know, overrated coming out of high school. You could make that argument at receiver. You could certainly make that argument on the offensive line. But Miami has has done a good job, uh, maybe among the best. Uh, You know, SMU might be slightly have have better results, but Miami otherwise is among the best teams so far in utilizing the transfer portal, getting impact players. They were able to, you know, get a starting tackle in Jared Williams uh, out of the transfer portal last year. He helped that offensive line improve a little bit. They were still 100th in our O-line performance ratings, but, you know, they made some strides in some key spots. Zion Nelson was a true freshman three-star starter uh, at left tackle in 2019, got absolutely humiliated in in that first game, struggled a lot as a freshman, uh, you know, lost his job for a bit. But last year was arguably the most improved offensive lineman in college football, became a top 25 uh, pass blocker in PFF grades as uh, a tackle, an FBS tackle, uh, or a P5 tackle, I should say. Um, and seems like, I mean, I've seen multiple uh, people refer to him as a potential future, future first rounder. They also added uh, Navon Donaldson, who only played a couple of games last year, but was a multi-year starter before that. He was injured for a large part of last season, but still leads the team in game started uh, among offensive linemen with 34. So, you know, you get a continually improving Nelson, you get Donaldson back to full strength. You've got Wilson or excuse me, Williams as a a second year starter in the system. They added two more transfers. uh, One of which uh, justice uh, was saying is a, uh, was a starter at UNLV multi-year starter. So, you know, I, I think, so I think we can trust, uh, some of these roster numbers and yeah, you know, maybe they're slightly inflated, but if De'Aaron King is healthy and that's the, the a number one, big, huge question of the season, he has the potential to be one of the best quarterbacks in college football. The offensive line I think is going to continue to improve. Mike Harley at wide receiver uh, had a, a real big second half of last season became, you know, looked like a, a true number one. And then they added Charleston Rambo who in 2019 had a really good year for Oklahoma, took a big step back last season, but has shown, you know, some real promise. Will Mallory, they're having to replace Brevin Jordan as their, you know, the top tight end, even though Mallory was a starter last year. Uh, But Mallory now having that spot sort of to his, you know, uh, to himself could be one of the best tight ends in college football. They, it sounds like, want to find a go-to running back to carry the load. They've got three solid options, Cameron Harris, Don Chaney Jr., 
Jalen Knighton. So, you know, they took a big step forward under Rhett Lashley last year. I do think we might see that year or two bump in the second year of the system. And my biggest concern, and, and it's, you know, uh, seems a little bit strange because Miami defensively has been so good. Uh, but my biggest concern is on defense. And, and last year they only ranked 59th in team performance. They were 79th in rushing team performance. Uh, and they lose, you know, some very talented guys. Uh, Gregory Rousseau, of course, didn't play last year or opted out. But he was a first-round pick. Jalen Phillips, who stepped in as a transfer, first-round pick. And then another, you know, transfer, Quincy Roche, uh, six-round pick of Pitt, of uh, Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, they're they're – having to replace some talented pressure or some talented players, especially uh, pass rushers. But with Manny Diaz taking back the defensive play calling duties, they no longer have a designated defensive coordinator. I I think that they are at least going to be able to maintain and, and perhaps get a little bit better statistically, even if they aren't quite as talented. Uh, the secondary, you know, I, I know they have some injury concerns. Alblades Jr. suffered a, a pretty bad injury last year. Hopefully he'll be back to full speed. But they added Tariq Stevenson, who started the bull game. Starter at corner for Georgia. Bubba Bolden is an all-ACC safety, one of the better safeties in college football. They've got a, a deep roster in that secondary. They've got three returning starters at linebacker. They've got their two interior defensive linemen back. They went into the transfer portal to get DeAndre Johnson from Tennessee, who's you know shown some promise in the past. They've recruited better over the last few years, you know, top fifteen up to uh, almost a, a top ten recruiting class last year. So Miami, on paper, looks like a really really good team. The schedule, other than the opener against Alabama, I think sets up decently well they have to go to north carolina which is is not necessarily what you would prefer but they do get you know an extra week to prepare for that game north carolina does not uh so that's you know a positive in the schedule and then you know they don't play clemson in the regular season uh they don't play nc state who we think could be among you know uh, the top three or four acc teams so i think you know as long as they don't get blown out and humiliated and, and uh, suffer some unfortunate injuries in week one against Alabama, App State's going to be tough, but that's the game that they should win, I think. Michigan State's similar. You know, all those games, uh, those those uh, second, third, and fourth non-conference games are at home, and, and Alabama's on a neutral uh, neutral field. So you're not taking any, you know, big, long trips. You're only your first – uh, game on an opponent's home field is that North Carolina game that you have an extra week to prepare for. So I, I think that Miami's in a pretty good spot. If King is not fully healthy, and it sounds like he's he's pretty close to it, I do have a little bit of a concern. Both backup quarterbacks played well in the spring game. So, you know, I, I think that they would be okay, but I certainly would rather a healthy De'Ara King but, you know, if, if this defense can get to a, you know, top 40 type level, which I think is very, very uh, doable, I think the offense will be a top 20 type offense, maybe even a top 10 type offense if, 
you know, Charleston Rambo hits if uh, that offensive line continues to improve. I'm I'm a believer in, in Miami this year, and, and it could end up really making me look stupid, uh, but our numbers are really high on Miami, and I, I don't know if I've just talked myself into it or I just want to believe, but I think I think Miami is the second-best team in the ACC. I think if they get Clemson on the right day in the ACC championship game, they could beat them, and I think potentially, you know, if, if that were to happen, you have a 12-1 Miami team, that's a playoff team, and, and that's a lot of ifs, I know, but uh, I, I, I'm i buying into Miami a little bit this year. Javier, what do you think about the Hurricanes? Because, I mean, looking at the schedule, it looks like you have the smash spot against Alabama where they're going to get hammered, and everything else is winnable. So if they can stay competitive in that first game against Alabama – uh, you know, they, they could get a little of a little buzz towards the playoff, but the I think the danger here is what we saw last year is them getting absolutely demolished by some of these teams that beat them. And uh, playing Bama week one, if that happens again, is not going to help their case. What do you think about Miami? I mean, this is a team that absolutely that I think Nick has completely talked himself into now. I, I don't think there's any going back for Nick. You know, he just said that they could possibly beat Clemson. I don't see that whatsoever. Um, but this is a team that's going to need confidence. It's going to be based off of confidence. And that for first week against Alabama is going to be big for them. You know, this team of Miami uh, reminds me, you know, a little bit of that Florida State team that, you know, came, came into the year ranked number four, Alabama week one. Yes, DeAndre Francois got hurt that year. But what was so big for me in the rest of that year was the fact that Florida State as a team kind of just capitulated after getting pretty much shellacked on national television. And that's the same thing I think that Miami could end up doing depending on this game against Alabama week one. You know, this is a team that has not had consistent success for a while. You know, the last time that I remember them being, a, a you know, a top or a close to a top college football was, you know, one of Mark Rick's last years uh, where they end up, you know, shellacking Notre Dame at home and everything's looking nice. But even in that year, they weren't consistently great. They were good and they, get, and they got away with it because of the talent on the field. Since then, the talent hasn't been able to just hasn't been able to get it done. And against Alabama, I don't think it will either. But they've got to compete in that game. They've got to look competitive. They have to. If they lose that game by 30 plus, that could set them up for failure. Uh, this is that is one of those games against Alabama where it is a it is a lose lose depending on what happens to the on, on that scoreboard. Because if you lose that game to Alabama in a very embarrassing fashion, are the guys going to be able to shake that off by the time that they play at App State? Who's going to come in hungry and is going to you know look to getting an, uh, another P5 team on their resume of P5 teams that they've already beaten? And, and App State's not going to come into that game scared at all because they have nothing to lose. And that's one of those situations when, when you play at a school that big, is if you don't come out to play, you will lose a game to App State. And all of a sudden, a Miami team that Nick, you know, is alluding to could be really, really good, starts off 0-2, and by God, the rest of the season could just, you know, we'll have to just see after that. You know, the same thing goes for right after their their bye week for me, you know, at North Carolina and NC State. Both two games I think are very winnable, but I think and both, I think at the same time, if they were to lose both of those games, it could end up in a pitfall. You know, and that's my biggest concern with what Manny Diaz has constructed at Miami is that they just don't seem consistent or confident enough to, to play week in and week out. 
They'll, they'll give you two weeks of solid football, and then they'll give you three weeks of, of garbage football, winning maybe one of those. And, you know, maybe this is going to be different with Derrick King at the helm. Um, hopefully this year he's not running for his life again for another year. Uh, that's another concern for me is that offensive line has to be able to hold up because with him being as injured as he has been, I don't see that them I don't see that them wanting to put the earnest on him having to run this year. You know, not only do, does it hurt his draft stock if, if he's having to just run for his life and he can't show you what it looks like in the pocket. But I think from a Miami standpoint, they would like for their quarterback to not all have to be, you know, a de facto running back for them to win ball games this year. Uh, but, you know, so for me, I think Miami is a team that I would, I'm much comfortable saying that this is a eight win ball club because they're going to have some losses here on their schedule that just don't make any sense. They, they, they aren't as scary as they have been in the past. And I'm just not comfortable saying that a Manny Diaz led Miami team is going to go and, you know, win 10 plus games and compete for the, and compete for an ACC title this year, you know, uh, maybe in a couple of years as a possibility, but I just don't see it coming all together this year. I will say offensively, they're, they're probably my favorite team to watch, watch offensively in the ACC. Uh, they, they have some really fun skill players. Um, you know, Mike Harley, Charleston Rambo that comes in, Mark Pope is going to be really fun to watch. Uh, Cameron Harris, I think is a guy who has, isn't necessarily, you know, uh, lightning in a bottle but is is a, is a workhorse and it's going to be you know a bell cow for them all season so i really like what they have at the skill levels and nick it around the head that secondary can be what they leaned on this year from a defensive perspective uh they're going to need to with the with the talent that they lost up front on the defensive line uh but al blades jr before his injury was having a really good year uh, tyreek stevenson is a guy with uber talent that i was actually really upset that left georgia uh bubba bolden is a guy who's been there who has seemingly feels like forever um, who you expect at the very least is, is you know, solidity and, and solidifies that back end. So if those two pieces can come together, that I still don't think this is a 10-win a ball club. I, I'm comfortable at most saying nine. I, I still think there's just some some morale and some some consistency issues that, that have been uh, – that have reared their ugly head underneath uh, Manny Diaz's leadership that I just am not comfortable saying yet that this is a double-digit win ball club. I, I think that's fair. Let's go over to NC State. Uh, who bounced back from a four win 2019 in 2020 to go eight and four last year, seven and three in conference. And uh, they won four in a row to finish the regular season. A real nice season for them. We have them at seven and five this year. Their DK number is six and a half. A favorite to win seven town edges in seven. But the question here is um, after rebounding, um, how much of that does have to go with the schedule, Nick? Because they didn't play. Clemson or Notre Dame last year. So kind of seems like they just had a favorable schedule. Uh, the roster is pretty solid at, at NC State, but uh, what do we think of the Wolfpack here? I think the schedule is definitely part of it. Uh, I, I I agree they have a talented, uh, very talented roster. You know, Dave Doran and, and his coaching staff have done a great job of uh, recruiting NFL level talent or, or sort of, you know, getting maybe some under-recruited guys who they're able to develop into NFL players. And, you know, last year they, they had uh, certainly, you know, one guy that, that fit that mold and Alan McNeil, who was one of the most productive defensive linemen, especially interior defensive linemen in college football and, and goes on to become a third round pick. A lot of people thought, you know, for a lot of last season, could maybe sneak into the first round or, or a second round type guy. Uh, but, you know, a couple of guys signed as, as undrafted free agents. But prior to that, you know, they, they've had a nice little run of 
some guys taken pretty high and, and, you know, putting a lot of players into the NFL. So, you know, playing a, a little bit of a, a weaker roster, at least missing some of the big time, uh, you know, challengers favorites in the conference was, was part of their success, but it wasn't all of their success. And, and uh, we spend, you know, sometimes certainly talking about teams that our projections get wrong. And, and, you know, sometimes it's easier to, uh, or, you know, you remember the big losses and not necessarily the, the uh, great wins, but NC state, you know, our model treated pretty well last year. We expected a uh, bounce back to a, a, you know, seven, eight win type season. And that worked out for us. So I was really pleased with that this year. A lot of people, it seems, you know, somewhat anecdotally listening to other podcasts and, and you know, seeing some of the uh, rankings in projection models and, and preseason magazines, that sort of stuff. There's there's a lot of buzz around NC State, especially since they succeeded last year without their starting quarterback. You know, Devin Leary was the guy uh, who everybody expected to uh, be the full-time starter in 2020. He ended up missing a lot of time in fall camp, couldn't start the season uh, full strength. So Bailey Hockman ends up uh, becoming the guy. Leary takes over, starts three games, unfortunately breaks his leg. Hockman is is uh, the starter the rest of the way. And, and uh, so I know a lot of the positivity right now is, hey, NC State won eight games last year, and now they've got their quarterback. So uh, there's there's a real buzz around the program. But this year, just sort of looking at the way our numbers are, are treating NC State, you know, we don't see a huge drop off by any stretch. And, and it's still a very talented team, 29th in roster strength overall, 16th in defensive roster strength. But uh, the schedule, you know, it, it, it's not the toughest schedule in the ACC by any stretch. Ranks 56th uh nationally in in our ratings but um you know you you mentioned that they didn't play clemson or notre dame last year well clemson's back on the schedule you know they they get them at home xavier mentioned in the clemson preview how nc state's given uh clemson some trouble in years past and and i i went back and, and looked at it uh and he was absolutely right but that was in 2016 and 2017. Since then, Clemson's been pretty dominant in that series. So, you know, that that's a game that NC State gets at home. But, you know, we have we have Clemson favored by almost four touchdowns there. So that's, you know, that's going to be tough. After an off week, you're sitting there probably 0-1 in ACC play, depending on how the non-conference schedule goes. You know, 3-2 and two probably seems about right, maybe even 4-1. and one, But then – on the road at Boston College, on the road at Miami. You know, you, you get a home game against Louisville, which is certainly not a gimme, but then another back-to-back road game. So four out of five uh, weeks in a row, they are on the road. In, unless I am misreading that or had that miss – yeah, no, that that's correct. So, you know, that's that's tricky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, Florida State and, and Wake Forest aren't – dominating type teams or we don't expect huge uh, results from them this year, but in playing four road games in, in five weeks is, is tough. And then you get Syracuse at home and then you have to host North Carolina. So the schedule doesn't set up nearly as, as favorably, I think 
this year. And, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I keep going back to that Louisville example, and this is definitely different because Dave Doran has uh, been there long enough. I mean, this is what is ninth or 10th year. It's not like we're expecting year two bump or year three regression or, or continued growth or, or whatever. It's just kind of it is what it is right now. But I think that last year an argument can be made that NC State was not quite as good as, as their 8-4 and four record showed. Uh, I think, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's you know, wishful thinking. Maybe it's just thinking we had NC State figured out pretty well last year, so maybe this year we've got a good read on them too. I, I think this is, is likely a team that's going to max out at about seven, maybe eight wins. We only expect six and a half and, and our, uh, you know, official prediction actually is, uh, you know, uh, even a, a little, uh, well, we did say seven. We did give them a bump to seven. I thought maybe I did six and six. Uh, but, you know, that that to me seems about the max, maybe eight wins, maybe they find a way to get there. But I, I don't necessarily see the type of growth to think that NC State is going to be a you know top fifteen type team, a, a top two or three team in the ACC, this seems a little bit more of a middle of the pack type team than a you know second tier ACC team. But there's a lot to like, and and if if Devin Leary you know steps up and and uh, really plays at a high level, there is room for growth because he's only an eighty one rated player according to our numbers. If he throws you know, for 300 yards in, in four of those first five games, that number is going to grow. And NC State, as a result, is going to, you know, break into the top 40, maybe top 35 in our rankings. I might be singing a completely different tune uh, by, you know, midseason. Their defense is solid. Number seven linebacker core, according to our Russia strength numbers. Uh, number 15, back seven. You know, top 25 defensive line, even losing McNeil, top 30 uh, secondary. So I think the defense is going to be very, very good. I like a lot of the skill position players. Zonovan Knight, Ricky Pearson, one of the best running back duos, certainly in the ACC, maybe in the country. I like Amika Mezzi as uh, their you know top wide receiver. Thayer Thomas seemingly, you know, once a game does something that surprises you, uh, whether it's throw a touchdown pass, make a crazy catch, you know, take a, 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 a jet sweep or, or something into a big play. Devin Carter and Porter Rooks, highly, you know, uh, there's a lot to like about both of those guys stepping up and, and becoming uh, potential impact receivers. The offensive line, Ike McQuanu, is a dominant run blocker. If he gets a little bit better as a pass blocker, you know, I, there seem to be a lot of folks out there who think he could be a first-round pick. He's one of four returning starters. On the offensive line, the you know projected fifth starter is in his, I believe, seventh year, at least sixth year, seventh year, something like that. So you know should be solid. Uh, and then they added a, a you know a potential uh, under the radar impact guy and a Division II All American, Chandler Zavala. So I you know I think the offensive line is going to be solid, but I, I just keep coming back to thinking. Schedule was a little little weaker last year than, than maybe we realized at the time. NC State 
was was maybe you know fortunate in a spot or two. They won a game against Pitt when they were 27% post-game win expectancy. They beat Wake Forest with 41%. So, you know, Georgia Tech they beat at, at 13%, even though that was a 10-point victory. So, I, you know, I, I, I think that there's a chance that we see just a little bit of regression or at the very least, you know, a team that might be slightly better but have the same or, or a little worse record. So seven wins seems seems about right, but but six and six wouldn't surprise me either. Xavier, what do you think of NC State this year? It's uh, I, I think Nick's right. I think, you know, they kind of got lucky with the schedule last year. Uh, it looks a lot rougher this year, probably in line to disappoint. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, they've got a hellacious schedule after their bye week. I, I think up until then, they have an opportunity to really go 4-1. and one. Um, I think they can beat Mississippi State at away. I think USF is USF. Uh, I think they can beat Furman and Louisiana Tech in that stretch as well, and, and their only loss coming to Clemson. Um, but after the bye week, you know, it's going to be a struggle. To start off with at Boston College and at Miami is just awful. And then, you know, you, you get a break by go, by, by playing Louisville in the, fellow, in the following week. You know, it's really going to be one of those situations where that three-game stretch between Florida State and, Sy- and Syracuse, they've got to pretty much win out. You you would think to to get to a bowl game or solidify themselves as a bowl as a bowl team, you know, and to get over their DK win total. With that being the case, I'm going to go with the under. I think this is still a six-win ball club. You know, I think this is still a team that can get to a bowl game um, and and make it. But I'm not I'm not on the train of this as a team that's going to you know jump from the the really good year that they had last year and, and you know, compile that to a, to have another one this year. I'm much more on the fence about that. I'm, I'm much more pessimistic about that. And I think more so you're, you're expecting a team like an NC state that, yeah, played a little bit more of a cupcake schedule, you know, that they got away with it a little bit last year, this year, they're not going to have that kind of a luxury to, um, to lean back on. Uh, but regardless, I still think this is a bowl game, a bowl team. I still think that they're good enough to win six games and their schedule really, when you look at it, if they're able to handle business in their non-conference to start the year off and they really are able to start off four and one, then all you need is two wins. And then you've got, you know, a bountiful amount of games to go get uh, against teams outside of really Boston College and Miami that I would think, you know, in North Carolina, that I think that you can absolutely compete against and go get that those two wins against. So you really have if we if we take away Boston College, Miami and North Carolina, you have Louisville, Florida State, Wake Forest and Syracuse. I think you can get find two wins out of that. Uh, to go get you to get you to a bowl uh, to a bowl game, so I think NC State's a bowl team, um, and, and I actually like what NC State's been able to do. They've been able to kind of stay around the middle part of the conference for the better part of the last couple of years, bringing in some you know having and really maturing some some talent. You know, Bradley Chubb is a guy who didn't come in really necessarily highly ranked. Uh, Ryan Finley was a guy that didn't necessarily come in highly ranked out of high school. They've been able to mature that talent and turn those guys into. To, you know, to where they're able to have a team where they're able to maybe go nine wins or again get on the cusp of a double-digit team uh, later on. But they've been they've done a really good job of keeping stopping themselves from completely bottoming out and, and being a really bad team. And they've been able to kind of stick to about six wins a year plus uh, for a while now. So I think NC State's been doing a good job. They continue to do a pretty good job on the recruiting trail, finishing 35th nationally and seventh in the ACC over this past year. So yeah, I, I like what AC what NC State's going. I think once again they're another team. Uh, or another year, excuse me, that they they end up in a bowl game. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to get close this year. It's, it is going to probably be the closest year in a while that they've been right there on the cusp of either not being in a bowl game or being in one. 
All right, let's move over to North Carolina, who last season uh, had an elite explosive offense. Uh, they, they could have beat anyone, but they finished eight and four. They were really inconsistent. Uh, DK loves them this year, got them at nine and a half wins. We have them at nine and three, favored to win 10, talent edges in 10. We did get a question on this team too, Nick. Uh, Justin asks, with UNC losing its primary pass catchers from last year, is tight end Garrett Walston someone we're sleeping on? No one is talking about this guy. Obviously, they have a couple big-time wide receiver recruits stepping up as well. So what do we think of UNC uh, moving into 2021 here? Uh, well, I can answer Justin's question pretty pretty quickly. Yes, I, I think Garrett Walston is somebody that that – people are sleeping on, especially given the turnover in the receiving group, certainly, but, but the offensive skill positions as a whole, and just came across a note, you know, a few months ago from, or I guess now a little over a full month ago from June in the Atlantic, uh, the Atlantic write-up, uh, athletic, Atlantic's different, uh, that Phil Longo, their offensive coordinator said, Walston has the best hands on the team. So yeah, I, I think for sure people are, are sleeping on him. Uh, more North Carolina, more broadly, this, this is, this is my team this year, <laughs> not because, and it's, and it's not because I'm super high on North Carolina. It's because we are an outlier. Uh, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes there's, there's value there. Uh, maybe we, you know, figured something out or, or, you know, calculated something in a particular way that uh, is giving us some value, or maybe we're the ones that are really, really wrong because I, I went and looked up uh, some other, you know, outlets that, that I trust think do a great job. Um, let's see here. So uh, in Phil Steele's like official rankings, I know he's got four or five different sets, but uh, he has North Carolina 12. Uh, the PFF ELO rankings, North Carolina is 11th. Athlon Sports and SP Plus both have North Carolina 10th. Lindy's Preseason Magazine, they're 9th. Uh, in the Pick 6 previews, uh, they're picked 4th and as a playoff team. And ESPN's FPI is seemingly the low uh, system has North Carolina 14th. They're 29th in our team strength. Uh, power ratings. And that is obviously much, much lower than just about everybody else. And it scares me to death on one hand, because, you know, there have been some teams that have been outliers and we've been way, way too low on in the past. This, this could be one uh, North Carolina. Absolutely. I mean, they've got a first round looking like uh, NFL draft pick as, as a quarterback uh, Ty Chandler coming in, a transfer running back from uh, Tennessee, is what like top five in Tennessee history in rushing yards. Uh, so you know, seems like a, a pretty solid uh, performer. Josh Henderson, pretty highly rated guy. Kamaro Edmonds is a over a ninety rated player according to two four seven Sports. Elijah Green is apparently the fastest running back on the roster according to Longo. Uh, he's also, you know, was praised for his work ethic. So it seems like they're going to be the, you know, able to, to offset some of that rushing production, but Michael Carter and Javante Williams were amazing 
last year. I mean, uh, North Carolina ranked fifth in our rushing team performance ratings last year. Both guys well over a thousand yards. Just, just incredible to watch how well they played. At receiver, it's it's similar. I mean, Sam Hel- Harrell, excuse me, Sam Howell uh, again in, in the Athletic said that Josh Downs will be a first round pick. That he's the best player that Howell has been around. Okay, I mean, if you talk to, to CFF folks, and I know Justin is a, a CFF guy, you know, people are, are really, really high on Josh Downs. He was, you know, a, a high four-star type player. He exploded in the Orange Bowl against Texas A&M, but he only played 74 snaps last year. He played 10 games, you know, didn't get a whole lot of work until the bowl game. Plus, he's also been dealing with a foot injury, missed all of spring, uh it, it sounds like he's going to be back but he had surgery in april so you know a foot injury is is not what i want uh, a wide receiver to be dealing with for sure coffrey brown i think has a chance maybe to push downs as that number one receiver uh and you know he had some injury issues as well had a low body injury and missed spring practice uh bo corrales is a guy who is is built like an nfl receiver you know, 6'3", 200-plus pounds, is a, you know, go-up-and-get-it kind of guy. He missed a large portion of, of last season with a low-body injury. So, you know, all three guys who they're expecting to come in and, and uh, take over for uh, Daz Newsome and, and uh, Deami Brown, two guys who were drafted last season, you know, if they've got their own level of concern. And, and certainly I think all of them have high ceilings. I think Chandler at running back and all those guys I mentioned have high ceilings. I think the receivers uh, have high ceilings. Emory Simmons, we've seen do some good things in the past. Uh, I've read some good things about Gavin Blackwell, true freshman coming in, highly rated guy. Apparently he was also a high school teammate of, of Sam Howell, played together a couple of years there. But I just, man, I've got some concerns. The offensive line, I know all five guys are back. I've heard plenty of, of good things about them. I know Joshua Azidu, the left tackle, is, is apparently uh, the one that most people are excited about. Uh, all five starters back, and, and they paved the way for all those rushing yards, helped Sam Howell, uh, you know, gave him a little bit of time, still can improve in pass protection, I think. But uh, uh, there's certainly reason to be excited about. But, I, you know, I always reference, oh, I read this, I read this, I read this. Another source uh, that I like a lot I mentioned before on the, pod, on the podcast, the QB school with JT O'Sullivan uh, provides a, a good opportunity to get some all 22 looks and has some, you know, he'll sit down and, and watch the full game and, and kind of talk about it as it's going on. Uh, if you're a, a Patreon supporter of him and he did the North Carolina versus Notre Dame game. And it's, it's, you know, just one, just one game and against one of the best defenses in college football last year. But you know, this is a guy who played more than a decade in the league and is a high school coach now, knows what he's talking about, so I, I trust him. And, you know, I could see it as he's as he's describing it as well. But I just want to read some of the, the comments about the offensive line as we're going. And he's not a, you know, not a guy that, that's just going to badmouth a team or, or badmouth a player or anything like that. It's just reacting as he sees it. And... Uh, here's here's just some of the, the, the comments that he mentioned. Sinner's getting murdered. What is he doing? They're either not good up front or they're overwhelmed. Uh, where are you going with the ball? 
I mean, there's just, you know, time after time, uh, just, just things are, are just not, you know, clicking. Talked about confusion in the RPO game. Uh, you know, is it coaching? Is it blocking assignments uh, for the, between the offensive line and the running back? There's so many missed assignments. So, you know, again, that, that's just one, one game, but I've watched a dozen or so uh, where, where he's done that. And <laughs> there were uh, two or three times as many complaints about the offensive line or just confusion as to what exactly they're doing or they're just getting completely run over in the middle of the offensive line. And, yeah, it was Notre Dame. Yeah, it was one game. But that that stuck with me a little bit. So maybe this offensive line, and they did rank 70th in our O-line performance ratings, but maybe that's not, you know, the, the elite unit that a lot of people seem to think it is. They rank 72nd in our talent numbers, 70th in performance. And then I look at a guy who's sitting there, you know, knows what he's talking about, watching the all 22 against a solid, you know, to very good defense in Notre Dame and has some major concerns. So, you know, maybe, maybe again, I'm talking myself into it a little bit. And I know Sam Howell is one of the best quarterbacks in the country, but I've got questions at every other level of the offense, the defense, oddly enough, because they ranked 82nd overall in team performance, 75th against the pass, 86 against the run. I actually have fewer questions on defense. They just have to get better. But, you know, I think they've got some players. They've recruited a little bit better, of course, since Mac Brown got there. They've gotten bigger on the defensive line, which is something that hurt them a few years ago. They were just getting pushed around a little uh, too much up front. But, you know, they, they've got some uh, sort of hybrid guys, edge players who can do some good things. Guys like uh, Tamon Fox, Tyron Hopper. You know, I know they lost Chaz Surratt, who was super, super productive and, and obviously talented enough to be a, a third-round pick. Uh, but it sounds like Jeremiah Gamel's a, a linebacker that a ton of people are excited about and can step in and, and provide a lot of production. The cornerback duo, Storm Duck and Tony Grimes, you know, is arguably the best in the ACC and then throw in Kyler McMichael into that group. He's highly rated according to our numbers, a, a transfer from Clemson. They're experienced at safety and nickelback. I, you know, I, I think I can, I can see improvement defensively and our numbers don't love Jay Bateman, despite some you know solid performance uh, numbers at army. He's only 93rd in our defensive coordinator ratings but I, I think there's enough to work with where they're going to they're going to improve a little bit. Uh, and I think the offense, I think Bill Longo is a great play caller. I mean, he's seventh in our offensive coordinator rankings, but I just I don't know. I've got some questions about the offense and we are probably too low. You know, if, if we're 15 spots behind everybody else, there's probably something that might be a little bit off for us. Our numbers do take into account a three-year and five-year weighted team performance window. I think that's what's, you know, pulling North Carolina down a bit because they're 10th in roster strength overall, 8th on offense, 17th on defense, but they're 25th in three-year weighted team performance. They're 32nd in five-year weighted team performance, and that does take into account uh, finishing 16th last season. So, you know, they were, they were a good, not great team last season, but I think our numbers don't just quite trust them yet. And then one, I'll end on this, but the last thing that, that, you know, gets me to think, okay, maybe, maybe we, you know, maybe we're the right ones. I don't know. 
Last year, they only beat three teams with a winning record. They lost to two non-winning teams in Florida State and Virginia. So they you know, weren't beating everybody they were supposed to. And then eight of the ten losses under Mac Brown have come by seven points or fewer. Are close losses, you know, luck or is it bad coaching? If it happens eight out of ten times, you know, I, I, I worry a little bit. So all that said, North Carolina could absolutely, we could look like idiots. Maybe they're a playoff team. Maybe they're, you know, an ACC championship caliber team. I, I will absolutely uh, admit it if it happens that that I messed something up in our calculations or we underrated somebody or, or something, but maybe I'm just looking for reasons to justify us being really low on them, but but we're lower than anybody else. And and I kind of I kind of believe. Xavier, what do you think? I mean, because with UNC here, they're they're getting a ton of buzz uh in the preseason here, like Nick said, and um I just don't know what to think. I mean, they're a solid team, but do they have enough to challenge in this conference? Oh, no, they don't. No. Uh, I think that this is a team that, genuinely speaking, I think if everybody returned this year, this would probably be the, sec- be the second best team in the ACC. Definitely could contend for a title. Uh, but this team, like I, I've said this before, this team reminds me a lot of uh, the Georgia team uh, a couple of years ago. Where Jake Fromm lost all but like one of his receivers as he was going into his junior year. Uh, Georgia struggled through that year, got upset by South Carolina at home. Um, and, and I feel like it's a similar vein when it comes to Sam Howell on the offensive side. He's essentially lost all of the almost all of the returning production he had at his skill level, at the skill positions. And this year it's going to be completely on him to really put the pieces together and make people look good. You know, Daz Newsome, uh, De'Ami Brown, Michael Carter, you know, these kind of guys, they they at times made Sam Howell look better than he was. It just call it what it is. You know, that two-headed monster of Michael Carter and, and Co. I can't, I can't remember his other name. Was it Javante Williams? I'm pretty sure. Uh, you know, was able to, to really – I mean, they dominated on the ground. They, I can't remember exactly what their yards after contact were, but I'm pretty sure it was six plus yards after uh, yard, uh, yards after contact. They, they they were a really really good uh, combination, and then on the outside you had two guys who you know were could, could stretch the field, run you know, and, and could run a uh, a variation of routes. You know, they weren't just deep guys; they could run short, they can run intermediate, they can also run deep. Sam Howell's got to be able to make the guys around him look that good this year when they maybe aren't. Uh, you know. Their running back core or their running back uh, room is definitely depleted. So they're going to have, you know, pretty much, you know, outside of Ty Chandler, they're going to have a lot of brand new guys. None of the guys in their running back room outside of Ty Chandler have started a football game. That, that, that's that's a lot. You know, that, that's going to be very new for them. And their receiving core, you know, you know, Nick uh, talked about Bo Corrales. Outside of him, though, the rest of the receivers have a combined three started games. That's not, you know, that doesn't bode well for a, a team that you really do look at their schedule and you go – Okay, this team could easily, you know, win their first half of their schedule, barring Miami. But at the same time, this team could very well be three and three by the time that they get their by, to their bye week as well, and slip up against a Virginia Tech on the road first game of the season, and lose to a Miami, and, and lose to a Virginia. So they they're de- definitely a boom or bust kind of team for me this year, which is why I'm staying way far away from them on any kind of betting uh, as far as their win loss is concerned. Because even though that yes, they don't see Clemson this year, uh, for me this this team I just I just don't know enough about the guys that 
are going to have to make the biggest plays on the team. I don't know enough from each from each position group to be confident that this team is going to be able to, you know, repeat what they did last year or even come close. You know, and DK has them at nine and a half, which I think is vastly overrated. Um, I, I, this for me at best is an eight win ball club. You know, you can't tell me that this team this year is better than they were last year. There's just no way that they're, and that's essentially what they're saying. You know, they went eight and four last year. There's no way that you're telling me that the team that is going to be walking on that field week one against uh, Virginia Tech is better than what we saw last year uh, from all the talent that they that they lost. And so for me, this is, a, you know, and we're not even talking about I didn't even mention, you know, uh, you know, Chad Surratt, who's the leader of that defense is gone, you know, and a guy that, you know, Yes, they have some really good secondary pieces that are going to have to step up for them this year. But Chad Surratt was all over the field for a reason. You know, he was, you know, he had that many tackles for a reason because of the fact that, you know, their defense wasn't great. They were they were good. They were very bend, don't break kind of defense. They weren't a very, you know, we're going to shut you down. Uh, so they're going to have to definitely that, that defense is going to have to take some strides this year to help out an offense that's going to be learning itself as it goes throughout the year. Uh, like, like I said, this is a team that would not be that's going to be quote-unquote upset prone for me for about four weeks before I really start to just calm down on that. Uh, you know, and you, you probably see it on the podcast. I'll probably just slip them in every week as watch out. They may get upset this week because I have to learn about this. T- I have to relearn about North Carolina and what they have on the field. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to put that out there. Circle your calendars, September 11th, Georgia State. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's a game that you would want to bet on. You might want to, you might want to give, you know, you might want to, you might want to think about it. Just oh, okay. I Just mean, saying. we'll see about you that. You would have called uh, me crazy about telling them you to bet on uh, the Tennessee game, too. So that's true. That's true. But I think everyone would have called you crazy. I mean, it was so unbelievable that someone put it on a van and drove around the city for like six weeks or whatever. So, uh, I mean, some of these come out of nowhere. But uh, with that, let's move over to Pitt. Uh, Pitt last year, a four-game midseason losing streak, which included two games without quarterback Kenny Pickett, resulted in an inconsistent 6-5 and five record last season. DK has them at 7.5 for the total uh, this year. We have them at 8-4, and four, so that number is in play. Eight uh, favorite to win, eight town edges as well. CK wants to know about Vincent Davis because Pittsburgh didn't really run the ball effectively last season, but uh, Vincent Davis did go crazy in the Georgia Tech game, and he wants to know, is that a sign of things to come, or is Vincent Davis going to turn into a pumpkin, Nick? So uh, let's hear about Pitt for 2021. It's it's so difficult to say. Uh, you know, Vincent Davis was the starting running back last year. Uh, he is bolded in our FBS team profile depth charts. He, he got... Uh, you know, the most starts, he'd certainly played the most snaps, played over 500 snaps. Uh, nobody else on that running back depth chart played 200. So, uh, you know, with, with that being said, you would think he's going to have, you know, the best shot to hold on to that. But I know that there's a lot of buzz around, uh, you know, sophomore Israel Abaconda. There, there was uh, a note, uh, I believe it was, the, the spring practice or, or excuse me, spring game, they did a draft and the players drafted the teams and, and Abiconda was the first overall pick apparently. So, you know, that shows that, that he's a guy that just impresses uh, teammates or I don't know if it was players or coaches, something, I don't know, but, but apparently he was like one of the first picks or the first overall pick for this. And he was a backup running back that played 70 snaps 
in seven games last season. So uh, if if he is that good and, and if he's ready to step up and become, you know, a, a go-to guy for Pitt, then that obviously hurts Vincent Davis. They also have A.J. Davis, who was the, you know, most – uh, saw the most action last season with 194 snaps. Todd Sibley is still there. Daniel Carter is still there. Plus, they throw the ball a ton. They, you know, Pitt was uh, one of the highest passing, you know, percentage of, of run pass ratio in the country last year to the passing side unexpectedly. And still, you know, they, they ranked 83rd in our passing team performance, but that was a little bit better than the rushing uh, output, which they were 101st in our rushing team performance. So Pitt offensively is a, is a little bit of an enigma. It's difficult to, to figure them out. Uh, I saw, you know, some uh, of those anonymous quotes that, that I can't get enough of that sort of alluded to they don't really know what they are on offense. And, and Mark Whipple is, is the coordinator there, and he's got, you know, a, a ton of uh, experience and has had some solid offenses in the past, but they aren't aren't consistent, certainly, offensively. Uh, one thing I am excited about, they added Brennan Marion as wide receivers coach. He's been an offensive coordinator in the, in the past. He's had several, you know, articles written of the go-go offense when he was at William & Mary, uh, at Howard prior to that, and, and just has done some really innovative, exciting things. And, and I wonder... You know, is he going to be in a position to, to influence Whipple and, and the offensive coaching staff where, when it comes to play design, play calling? Because he's we've talked about him several times on, on the show. He is a rising star in the coaching profession. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out. I'm interested to see if the wide receivers can take another step under Marion. Jordan Addison was one of the best true freshmen of any position last year in college football, certainly, you know, just from a statistical impact uh, emerging as, as, you know, one of Pitt's uh, basically co-number one, we would say, with, with D.J. Turner last season, but uh, was was certainly, you know, looked at times like a future star. And then every once in a while, you know, Shockey Jacques-Louis will pop up and have a huge game. Tysir Mack, I, I watched a, a replay of uh, – couple of pick games this week and and um what was it against nc state maybe i don't know sometimes they run together but back-to-back plays just had you know impressive leaping catches so they've got some guys who can jump up and and uh make a a, you know big play or have a big day or or addison can be a go-to guy with a lot of targets a lot of receptions that sort of thing but they just aren't aren't consistent Kenny Pickett is uh, probably, you know, by this time we, we kind of know what he is. He is a uh, super senior starter with 36 games under his belt. He's had some injury issues here and there, and, and just like everybody else, he's had some consistency issues. But he's a solid option, and, and I think that Pitt's going to be, you know, they're, they're going to be – maybe a little better than the the stats would suggest. Uh, offensively, this doesn't seem like a triple-digit offense, but it doesn't necessarily seem like a top-50 offense either. But we, we know, of course, that, that Pitt defensively is, is a pretty sure thing. I mean, they've led the nation in sacks the last two years. Uh, they've been among the national leaders in, in rushing defense. Uh, there was a quote in the, the – 
athletic piece where, uh, you know, somebody said people can't run the ball on us. Well, that's, that's a pretty big statement, but it's been true. I mean, this was our number one defensive line in our performance ratings last year. They led the nation in havoc rate uh, last season, 22.4%. They led the nation in tackles for loss against running plays, 19%. Of the time opponents were tackled behind the line of scrimmage, that was the the uh, highest rate in the country. And then they got better as the game went on. They allowed an average of three points per game in the fourth quarter, which of course led the country. So defensively, you know they they are a proven uh, have a proven track record. The only bit of concern is of the what six. Uh, pit players that were drafted last season, five of them were defensive starters. And that doesn't include Paris Ford, who, you know, at times played like an All-American, uh, who ended up signing as an undrafted free agent. So there's a lot of turnover on defense. There's reason to think that maybe they aren't going to be quite as dominant, especially in the secondary. Uh, but, you know, there are some reasons to, to be optimistic that, that this is a unit that continue to play at a high level as well. The linebacker core looks pretty good. Top 15 in the country, Phil Campbell, Cam Bright, uh, both you know, 93, 95 type rated players, according to our numbers. Kalijah Cansey was one of the most productive interior defensive linemen in the country last year. PFF had a note in its preview that he was the only, uh, only one of three power five interior defensive linemen that ranked in the top 10 in their grades, both against the run and the pass. And the other two are now in the NFL. So, you know, the middle of that defense should be solid. Uh, and, you know, Marquise Williams at, at corner gives them somebody to build around in the secondary. Damari Mathis, if, he be, if he's able to come back from missing last year with an injury, that should be a pretty good duo. You know, I, I think they're going to be fine on defense. But, uh, again, I love an anonymous quote, and this one is, is kind of chopped up a little bit, but I thought did a really, really good job of, of kind of pinpointing Pitt. They're consistently inconsistent. Pitt wins one game that they have no business in winning and loses three it shouldn't. That's, I mean, that is that is Pitt to a T. That's Absolutely. the concern. And and that, that was in the Athlon preview. Uh, and, and, you know, I believe Stephen Godfrey puts those uh, quotes together and, and he gets some really good insight. But that, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And, you know, is this a team that can go 4-0 in the non-conference? Absolutely. Is this a team that might lose to Tennessee and Western Michigan? Absolutely. Is this a team that could lose to Georgia Tech in that ACC opener? Sure. Is this a team that might be the best, the ACC's best bet uh, to upset Clemson? Probably. Uh, you know, so it's it's they're a very, very difficult team to project. And it, it's hard to, you know, really trust our numbers because sometimes, yeah, they knock off somebody they're not supposed to. Sometimes they lose to two or three teams that they're not supposed to. But uh, the schedule is manageable, 64th in the country. That's on the very low end of our ACC rankings. I think it's second, uh, the, the second easiest schedule according to our calculations. That's, or excuse me, fourth, but but not big of a, not not much of a gap there, but you know, being in that 60s range is is certainly a manageable uh, schedule. Seven and three-quarter wins are projected average. I did round that the other way. No, no, I, I'm looking at the wrong thing. It's late. We're, what, three-something hours <laughs> in. Uh, 
you know, so so eight wins is the prediction. Uh, seven and three quarters wins is the projection. Five wins in ACC play, but that means you know that means uh, that they're they're going to knock off one of North Carolina, Miami, Clemson, Virginia Tech. Yeah, that that seems doable. Uh, but this is also a team that you know would we be at all surprised if they finished six and six? It's just been as that that anonymous uh, opposing coach said consistently inconsistent. So it's it's difficult for me to trust our projections, but I think the defense is going to continue to play really well. And if the offense can kind of figure out its identity, you know, I, I think there is certainly some room for improvement there. So our numbers think they're a top 35 team, think they're the, the fourth best team in the ACC at this point. At first glance, that seems a little high. I, I You know, this doesn't just opinion and thinking about where I would slot pit in a top you know 50 list. I'm not sure they would be in that top 40, but you know, there, there are plenty of things to like as well. So there's a similar kind of like Boston college, a, a bit of a wide range here in the right scenario, nine wins, maybe even 10 wins. Uh, if absolutely everything clicked and the offense took a big step forward, but you know, six wins, sure. Five wins if, if the defense just uh, crumbles with so much turnover. Wouldn't shock me either. So uh, eight eight wins is the prediction, is the projection, but Pitt is, is uh, a difficult team to nail down for sure. Yeah, and because of that description, Xavier, that's exactly what's going on with Pitt. You know, uh, win a game, they have no business winning. Lose three, they have no business losing. So it makes it hard. Hard to pick a uh, a win total for them. So, what do you see for uh, Pitt going into twenty twenty one? Six and six, the most inconsistent record you could possibly have. You win one, you lose one. Uh, but no, I, I genuinely think that Pitt is a team that, with their schedule, I, I as erratic as they are, this is a team that could absolutely start five and zero. Do I expect them to? No, because it's Pitt. But is there, is there is it possible for them to start five and zero, four and one, and really just have to win a game down the stretch? Which you look at the second half of the schedule. And I'm circling that Duke game as the game that gets them over the hump and gets them to that sixth victory. I think they can go five and zero. You know, outside of really Tennessee, you know, they should win every other game on this schedule. You know, maybe Georgia Tech is a more improved team by week five, and maybe you know I'll come back and you know disagree with my own statement by that point. But you look at UMass, you should win that game, especially with it being at home. Western Michigan should win that game with it being at home. New Hampshire, same thing. So that's three wins right there. And I do, like I said, I do think that they can go into, the, into Knoxville and win that game with a team that at the moment doesn't necessarily have an identity yet. And Georgia Tech, who, who's an ascending team, but I don't think is where Pitt is just yet. Um, I think that that gives them four wins, possibly five, uh, to start the year off. And like I said, Duke. And Syracuse, those are the two games that they have to win in the second half of the year to get to that, you know, that bowl game. Um, you guys know my infatuation with Kenny Pickett. I think he's running, you know, I think I think he could play in any era of football. You know, you could be, you could put a leather helmet on Kenny Pickett. And I think he'd still go out there and, and play 100 percent. That's just how I feel. That's just, you know, the kind of quarterback he is. That's the kind of football player he is. He's a football player. And I love it. Um, and you know, I think this year, you know, Jordan Addison is a guy that I think a lot of people should keep their eyes on. I think this is a guy who's going to be a really, really good receiver when he finally comes out. Only a sophomore. 
um, really showed a lot of talent last year. Um, it became Kenny Pickett's really number one target. So, you know, if you're thinking about CFF, that's a guy you might want to look at. Just saying. Um, so, uh, you know, hey, I, you know, I have my own little CFF here every now and then. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I really like Jordan Addison. I, I, I like the fact that Pitt has an identity. See, a lot of the teams we've talked about in this episode are, are finding their identity or slash building their identity. You know, we just talked about North Carolina. We just talked about NC State. We talked about Miami trying to become, you know, maybe the bullies of the ACC again. Pitt has their identity. We're going to make it ugly. We're, we're going to try to win ugly week in and week out. If we win a game, it's going to be 24-20. You know, if, if we lose a game, it's going to be 35, you know, 31. We're going to make it ugly. And, and that when, when you do that week in and week out, we talk about this with Iowa. Iowa does it a little bit, well, a lot of it better than Pitt does. But when you're a, a team that understands what you're trying to do week in and week out and understands your, not only what you can do, but also understands your limitations, it, it really allows you to kind of just go out there and play your game. Um, and, you know, like with Kenny Pickett, for instance, we know week in and week out, he's going to have to play a game where he, you know, where he almost dies if they're going to win the ball game. You know, he's probably going to have to hop over a linebacker slash try to run one over for, for, for them to beat a team, you know, you know, in week six. So that is just kind of what Pitt does at this point, And we understand it. And, you know, I think when you have that identity, every week is a possible win outside of playing a Clemson or a Miami when you're just completely outmatched and outclassed in that regard. But, hey, like I said, I think this is a six-win ball club. I think they more than are capable of getting to a bowl game. Like I said, I think they can start off 5-0, and and then they only need one more win. And you have Duke on your schedule. So chalk it up at six at that point. And so I like Duke here. I don't like them to go over the seven and a half. I'm, I'm just not willing to do that. Um, eight wins for Pitt would be a really, really good year. Uh, but six wins, you know, even seven wins is is completely feasible for that team. One CFF note that I should have, have mentioned in, in uh, CK's question, if it's on the one-yard line, Vincent Davis isn't getting the ball. No running backs getting the ball. Kenny Pickett, it's Pickett time. Is, is running a sneak. 100% guaranteed. I saw it five or six times in two games. Uh, yep. that I rewatched this past week. So it's touchdown okay. numbers, you know, he, he gets in the end zone because there is there is no other play call for Mark Whipple on the one-yard line other than a Kenny Pickett. Uh, Better score from five yards out, Vincent. So, yeah, because uh, yeah, you, you're not going to get it from one. <laughs> Let's go over to Syracuse, uh, ranked 99, second worst in the ACC behind uh, Duke for us, just two years removed from a 10-win season, Syracuse created to an ugly 1-10 record last season, 1-9 in conference. Uh, they have four losing records in Babers, five seasons there. Uh, three is their DK win total. We have them at 4-8, and eight, uh, favored to win two town edges and four. So uh, shine a little good light on Syracuse for us if you can. Nick, what do you think? It's difficult. Uh, I mean – you said it. They're favored in two in our official uh, projection model. They have talent edges in three. That's against Ohio, Albany, and Liberty. And I don't know that we would necessarily uh, say that Syracuse actually has a talent edge against Liberty. That's just sort of the way the, the numbers go. But uh, Liberty beat Syracuse, you know, last season and and uh, has the best, you know, arguably, uh, you know, a top five quarterback, one of the best quarterbacks in the country, Malik Willis. So it's it's difficult to make that argument that that number is correct. Uh, but then our stats only projection model, which, you know, last year was uh, consistently our, our 
best model. It, it took until bowl season for the official projection model to, to finally overtake it. But uh, it only has Syracuse favored in one game, and that's against Albany. Um, Ohio is is uh, over a touchdown favorite. Rutgers is a favorite, slight favorite. And Liberty is almost, uh, almost a, a touchdown favorite in that model. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to see a big bounce back from Syracuse. I think they will improve. They had injury issues on both sides of the ball last year. They had injuries at quarterback. They had injuries on the offensive line. They had injuries in the secondary. It, that, that's difficult. They also had opt-outs. You know, they also had uh, just some, some other stuff going on that, that you know, it's kind of difficult to navigate, especially last season when, when things were so weird. But they, <laughs> you know, the offensive line uh, has given up 88 sacks combined over the last two seasons. They've averaged 39 sacks allowed in the Dino Babers era. Uh, you know, part of that is quarterbacks holding on to the ball too long, but part of that is just offensive line play has, has really uh, been lacking. They ranked 126th in our O-line performance ratings last year. The offense as a whole just completely cratered. They ranked 124th overall offensively in team performance for us, 125th passing, 125th rushing. And, you know, do we really expect them to bounce back? Tommy DeVito uh, might not be the starting quarterback. Do we think Garrett Schrader is the answer, the transfer from Mississippi State. I mean, he he flashed at times as a runner primarily under Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State a couple of years ago. But, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, when, when Syracuse was uh, was contending for bowl games and that year they won 10 games, I mean, was Eric Dungy still there, right? And so he was running around a bit and making plays. Maybe that's what they need. Uh, but, man, it, it, it's difficult. This will be my last sort of – uh, anonymous coaching thing, but I wanted to read this one kind of in in length and, and subscribe to the athletic. I think it's I think it's worth it, and, and that's where this is from. So I'm going to read it at uh, pretty much word for word. But uh, an anonymous coach on Syracuse. The last two seasons have really shown their offensive system is flawed. They don't have the personnel up front to protect their QBs, and they haven't had anything in the pocket that really threatens you. They're predictable since they don't utilize tight ends and don't have a ton of creativity in their offense. It's stale. I give them credit for some of the athletes they've developed into defensive end, but they don't uh, stop big plays, and that's bitten them hard. We look at them as a free win week and a chance to try stuff out, regroup, get younger guys involved in the second half. I, I, need, <laughs> I need that coach to be revealed. I know they're all anonymous. That's why they're need, anonymous, yeah. And so, I know, need sometimes – Sometimes you you uh, sometimes a guy in that situation or a coach in that situation uh, might not you know might not pull punches. Sometimes they'll sugarcoat things a little bit. Sometimes they might mislead you. I mean, I think the ACCs, why well, I've, I've mentioned several of them uh, in this particular show, has had some some pretty insightful ones. That's about as insightful as it gets. I mean, we see them as a free win. Their offense is flawed, and they just don't have the personnel to run it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think even if I were trying to talk myself into Syracuse thinking, man, you know, this offense used to be so good. Reading a thing like that makes me think 
you know what, this just, unless they change something, unless they change their offensive identity, or unless Garrett Schrader takes control of the job and, and sort of adds an element that they've missed with DeVito being the guy the last couple of years, or Rex Culpepper who stepped in and, and started a lot of games last year, then I, I see very little optimism. I, I'm, I'm not optimistic at all that they will bounce back. They've been able to develop some defensive players, you know, as, as that coach mentioned, in the secondary, they had two guys drafted, Andre Sisko, uh, Ifitu Milfanu, uh, Trill Williams was an undrafted free agent, so all three of those guys in the secondary are gone. That's a, a, an area of concern. They do have four starters back in the secondary because of injuries, uh, but, you know, all four are sophomores, so, you know, they're, they're not uh, highly rated according to our numbers. They, they didn't produces a super high level last year Syracuse was 84th in our defensive team performance overall 83rd against the pass 106th against the run their their area of strength is the front seven they rank 36th in our d-line ratings uh, our talent ratings they rank 36th in the front seven 45th uh, at linebacker those three areas are the highest the, you know the three highest ratings only quarterback uh, with DeVito being a relatively highly rated guy coming out of high school, he and Schrader both, so they're 84, 85 rated players according to our projections. That seems a little high on both of those, quite honestly. But quarterback is the only other position group that's top 50. In fact, it's the only other uh, position group that's top 65 nationally. So I don't I don't see it with Syracuse. I know we've got them you know, favored uh, – in, in, a, in a couple of games, Rutgers is, is one of those. I don't necessarily – I don't know. I think if I were personally just setting a line and, and not relying on our model, I might think Rutgers should probably be favored in that game. Uh, I, I certainly agree that, that they shouldn't be favored in any ACC game. They don't play Duke. So, you know, four wins seems, seems really, really uh, difficult. Seems 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 like too many to me. I I absolutely would say the under three is the way to go here. This is not one I've uh, I've bet myself because our projection is of course on the on the other side. Our prediction is four and eight, but that even to me seems seems too high. I mean three and nine seems like the ceiling for Syracuse for me this year. What do you think about Syracuse? Do, do you think they can get on the right track again here, Xavier, or is this going to just be uh, a brutal showing yet again? I think this might be Dino Babers last year. Uh, it's it's going to be rough. It's it's not favorable for them at all. Their non their non conference schedule was not easy. We talked about how good Ohio could be this year. We talked about Rutgers being a much improved team. Uh, Albany's really the only guaranteed win in their non conference schedule. And then you look at it from there and. I mean, it's just – it's hellacious. I'm sorry. They they have the worst situation. Now, they might not have the toughest schedule in numbers, but they have one of the worst situations uh, in the ACC. You know, you, you have – not only do you get, you know, Clemson, Virginia Tech, and Boston College in a three-game span, but you also have the latest bye week of any team that we've talked about so far in the ACC um, in November 6th, which means it's going to be a war of attrition until you can get to that bye week, until you can get to a place where, you know, you're able to rest and regroup and for some teams, especially teams like Syracuse, a bye week typically does them really good from a regrouping standpoint. You know, when you're a team that's not very, you know, that doesn't, you know, win a lot 
having another week to regroup, to to kind of boil down the season to, all right, guys, we need to win the next six games, or all right, guys, we need to win the next seven or ne- next five or whatever. It really helps to be able to, when you're a team that doesn't, you know, that might be two and three at that point, to be able to regroup and get back to 500 the very next week. They have seven, or excuse me, they have nine straight games to play before they get to a bye week. So if it starts off bad, it could just snowball from there. And for me, I'm I'm really concerned if Tommy DeVito can even play the entire year. Um, his health has been in question the entire time he's been at Syracuse due to the fact that their offensive line can't hold up for anything. Um, you know, and, and when Tommy DeVito has time, he looks like a pretty good quarterback. That's the only issue when he has time. Um, you know, uh, Taj Harris is a is a receiver I really like. You know, I think that they have some some talent. They have some talent on the outside. They've had some talent in the last couple of years at the receiver position, but you don't really hear about them because they, they're not getting the ball to them because they don't have enough time in the pocket to do so. So I, I'm not positive when it comes to Syracuse football this year. Dino Babers has got to be really sweating it this year. Every game has got to be sweating it because he's got to have one of the hotter seats in college football at this point. Um, with, with the lack of success he's been able to have since that 10-win year. Uh, this will be going on, what, three years since that season? So really the the you know the nostalgia effect, the nostalgia effect has probably worn off by now. Uh, so if you're Syracuse and if you're a Syracuse fan, you're going to be sweating it every single game because I, I, I am not too confident about them going into this year. I know they have three games is, is the over-under for them from DK. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I'll say over just because I feel like three games is for a P5 team. You're almost expecting four to be the baseline for a lot of for a lot of P5 teams. But with that non-conference schedule, I can't guarantee that they'll be Ohio, Rutgers, or Liberty. You know, last year I picked Liberty when we talked about this game, so I, I'm not so sure that it is. This is a you know uh, an opportunity for them to even get a win. Um, if they don't get them in the non-conference, finding them in conference is just you know magic at that point. Going to be rough. Going to be a rough mm-hmm. one for Syracuse. I think we can all agree on that. Let's go over to Virginia. A 44-41 to 41 win over North Carolina. Snapped a four-game losing streak for them last year and sparked a four-game win streak to in an up-and-down 5-5 five and five campaign. But six and a half is their DK win total. We have them at six and a six. Uh, five, a fa- favorite to win in five. Talent edges in seven here. So what do we think about the Cavaliers for 2021, Nick? I when I was putting the some of those numbers together, seeing what games that you know each program was favored in in uh, the ACC, uh, especially the talent edges and, and the prism uh, stats only model you know projection, I thought it seemed a little bit backwards. And and both of those talent edge and uh, the stats only model, that's the only thing that each of those takes into account talent metrics on, on the one side and, and stats on the other side. So home field advantage is not a thing. So that, you know, sometimes can give us a little bit uh, different numbers when you add it all up, uh, uh, you know, if there are uh, otherwise projected to be toss up games, but I was surprised that Virginia was, you know, uh, showing a talent edge in basically half of its games. Cause we don't think of, you know, Virginia is being a, a great recruiter necessarily. They don't go out and get or over half their games, seven, seven talent edges. Uh, and, and then the stats only model, which usually is, you know, higher on a team like Virginia that seems to 
you know, sometimes overachieve or does a good job of developing uh, players and, and things like that. For that model to have them favored only in five, that that seemed backwards to me, uh, just sort of the way we, we uh, calculate things. But, you know, Virginia is a well-coached program. Uh, they have a deep, experienced offensive line. They have a quarterback that you can build around. They're very unique offensively. Uh, they will sometimes play, you know, two quarterbacks on the field at the same time. Keaton Thompson uh, is a guy that they moved around a ton last year, and it sounds like he will be a bigger part of the offense moving forward because he was uh, you know, limited a little bit by injury. Uh, but Brendan Armstrong is somebody you know who, who has, I think, all ACC potential at the quarterback position. I think he's a better runner than a passer, but you know, I think he does some good things in the passing game as well. Unfortunately, he won't have their their who I think is their best receiver because Lavelle Davis, who uh, you know had had some big games and, and big moments at times as a six seven true freshman last season, seemed like he was going to be you know maybe a, a, a rising star in the ACC, but uh, unfortunately suffered uh, an ACL tear in April and looks like he's going to miss almost if not all the. Uh, the regular season. So that hurts because, you know, they've struggled to consistently run the football, especially out of the running back position. Wayne Tulipapa is a multi-year starter, but he's really been uh, utilized or had his, his most success in short yardage situations near the goal line, things like that. Ronnie Walker transferred from Indiana, got a little bit of playing time last season, but seems like he could, you know, uh, contend for that job. Devin Darrington, was a starter at Harvard, uh, you know, for, for a while or, or, you know, played a lot of snaps at Harvard, I should say, uh, had some success there was actually, a, you know, mid to, to a three level or excuse me, three star recruit coming out of high school. So not your average FCS transfer. That's, uh, just sort of an unrated player or, or former walk on level player. Uh, he was, you know, pretty, pretty solid recruit. So, they're all seniors. Somebody I think is going to step up. If not, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out. But I think with Armstrong and just sort of the unique things they do, different personnel groups that you're not going to see everywhere, different formations you're not going to see, uh, they, they figure it out. Last year they won five games. They beat North Carolina. were able to finish strong. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's hard to count out Virginia, and part of the reason is they were one of those teams, like North Carolina uh, is for us this year, that everybody thought a couple of years ago was going to pop up and, and uh, be a contender in their division in the ACC. Our numbers didn't see it. We've changed some things. We've changed some things since then that hopefully will do a better job of, of capturing a team like that. But you know, I'm always cognizant: are we underrating Virginia? It's it's possible this year, but you know, I, I also don't know that it's super likely because returning production in a year that seemingly everybody brings back a lot, they rank 109th overall and 121st on defense. They were hit. They were hit hard by guys leaving either you know for NFL opportunities, which they didn't have any players drafted. But Charles Snowden and D'Angelo Amos were uh, undrafted free agents. But guys like Zane Zandier and, and Robert Snyder. 
uh, Brenton Nelson, you know, Matt Gam played a lot of snaps, Richard Burney, you know, all of those guys were, if not starters, and, and Snyder wasn't a starter, but he was a guy that, that contributed in other ways. Uh, you know, that that's a lot of, of experience leaving, it's production leaving, and this isn't a, a team that, as we said, uh, recruits at a, a real high level. You kind of wonder, are they going to be able to, to fill those holes, especially in a year where uh, they're going to be playing teams that are that are a lot more experienced and more talented in, in some instances. I know we mentioned the talent edges earlier, but, uh, you know, they're still heavy, heavy uh, at a disadvantage in, in talent numbers against North Carolina, against Miami. Uh, even, you know, they're, they're uh, underdogs in, in that metric against Georgia Tech and Pitt. So uh, it's, it's, it's tricky for me. It's, it's difficult for me often to put, you know, to get my uh, uh, head wrapped around what exactly I think Virginia, you know, can and should be. But this year, they're ranked 67th in our, our numbers. Most of the time, that would seem low to me. This year, you know, unless Armstrong can really elevate the offense as a whole, that seems about right because not sure exactly the running back situation. Uh, they're going to need somebody to step up and be a game breaker at receiver because Davis is not available. You know, Billy Kemp catches a ton of balls, targeted a ton, but isn't necessarily a dynamic uh, player. You know, the offensive line graded out really, really well last season, 11th in our performance rankings, but it, it's not necessarily, I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not articulate, obviously, or articulating it well here. <laughs> uh, but Virginia is a difficult team for me to nail down. I think they are a bowl contending team for sure. We do project slightly under five and a half wins, but I do give them the benefit of the doubt because I do think they are very, very well coached uh, and bumped it up to six and six. But it's hard for me to, to think that there's a lot more on top of that. Seven or eight wins seems like a stretch. Six and six seems seems about right to maybe even uh, a little on the high side for, for Virginia this year. Yeah, Xavier, I mean, uh, they seem like a borderline bowl team, I think would be uh, a way to describe them. What do you, what do we think of Virginia for this year for you? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that statement. I think that borderline bowl team is exactly right. I think when you think about their non-conference schedule, William and Mary and Illinois are two very winnable games. Um, I think BYU will be a worse team than they were last year. So I think that's also a very winnable game, although they get them later on in the year and they have to go to Provo. I think that's still a very winnable game for them to do. Uh, well, Virginia is one of those teams for me that <clears throat> is just steady. They they may be a team that goes six and six, but they win the games that they're supposed to and they lose the games that they're supposed to. That's what they do. You know, I, you know, and in some years, obviously they were able to put it all together like a couple years ago when they went to the Orange Bowl, but Every week that Virginia plays, I feel like, you know, they'll lose to North Carolina and then they'll beat Wake Forest. And I'm not – I don't ever feel like when it comes to Virginia, they're a team that loses games that they're not supposed to be losing. You know, so Wake Forest, I expect them to win that. Duke, expect them to win that. BYU, William & Mary, Illinois. That's five right there. Um, and if they can find another one, whether that be against Georgia Tech, whether they be, you know, in, in more of a toss-up or against Pitt, there you go. That's six. So, yeah, I agree. I think they're a borderline bold team. I think – uh, DK has them at seven, correct? 
No, six and a half. So, yeah, so they would have to win seven games. I, I don't see that happening for them. I think this is a team that goes under that. Um, and six wins is where I'm comfortable sitting. I wouldn't be surprised if they also went five and seven this year. Uh, but once again, like I said, where, where you know, typically you think about a six and six record, you think inconsistencies. With Virginia, not really. They lose the game that they're supposed to lose. And they typically beat who they're supposed to beat. And that is just who they are. Um, and from from uh, from a talent perspective, you know, they're not always the more talented teams. They're able to get it done. And so, like I said, I think this is a team that's five and seven, six and six is right around where I have them. So I would go, I would say that, Scott, you hit it right on the head. Borderline bowl team is where you have Virginia. Uh, we go over to Virginia Tech. They lost four of their final five games to limp to a five and six finish, but ended on a high note with a 33 to 15 win over Virginia uh, in the finale. So that was nice for them. We have them at seven and five. DK has their total at seven and a half favored to win eight town edges in only five. But the question here that is posed to us, Nick is does Fuente uh, survive this season? So uh, always high expectations for Virginia tech this year is going to be, uh, just like all of those other years. So what do we think about the Hokies for 2021? It's, uh, you know, it, it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds because I think that Justin Puente is, is definitely on the hottest seat uh, of any ACC head coach, arguably. Uh, I know, you know, buzz around the fan base. Folks are a little frustrated. We've talked about for years uh, even before the you know the transfer portal was something that we talked about every five minutes it seems Virginia Tech was having trouble holding on to players. I have some questions about you know roster construction and, and you know Justin Quinte is, is uh, knows more about football than than uh, I ever will. But when I was doing some early early off season counting and, and you know uh, getting ready to change over our uh, team profiles from the uh, 2020 season to, to 2021, I was counting it up and looking at, at what I assume are scholarship players. Uh, and there were more running backs on the roster than offensive linemen. That doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> you know, they, they're losing guys who are uh, starters on the offensive line to other uh, Power 5 programs. Their starting quarterback uh, has been a bit of a revolving door. Hendon Hooker is gone. Quincy Patterson is gone. You know, Braxton Burmeister, you bring in a transfer uh, and, and he seems to be the guy and, and, you know, has, has had his moments, has flashed at times and was a uh, well-regarded recruit out of high school at California when, when uh, he signed uh, at Oregon and, and uh, you know, it, it is not necessarily a step back from Hooker or, or Patterson or any of those guys, but you know, doesn't necessarily, it just doesn't seem stable, right? And that I think has been sort of a thing under Fuente. After decades of stability under Frank Beamer, you know, and, and kind of having all of this turnover since and, and starting on a pretty high note, but then it, it seems like a, a pretty, you know, steady uh, movement in, in the wrong direction. They, they just, you know, they haven't been a top 40 team in our pre team performance uh, numbers since 2017. And this is for for their first however decade or so in the ACC was a consistent division champion or, or consistent division challenger, I should say. 
So it's, it's, you know, it's a weird place to be because there are reasons for optimism. The, the receiving core, I think, is pretty talented. I mean, top 20 group in our numbers. Even though the offensive line numbers as far as like scholarship players, I, I have a little bit of a concern with the talent, you know, roster uh, uh, strength portion of it. They're a top 20 unit nationally, top four offensive line in the ACC. It, it should be a strength of, you know, that of that offense, of the team as a whole. The linebacker group, and, and they do only start two linebackers, so uh, that that could potentially skew it a little bit, but they rank ninth nationally with Dax Hollyfield being a, a, you know, 100 max rated player. In the front seven, it's definitely, you know, a strength. We think this is a top 10 uh, front seven unit as far as our numbers go. It's a top 20 back seven. They've got a lot of experience coming back and, and should be, you know, healthier and deeper with uh, Jermaine Waller, who is a starter, uh, missed large chunks of last season. They got Devon Hunter back from a, a, an off-the-field issue. Seemed like that has, has worked itself out. So he's a guy who can come in and certainly has the raw talent to be a starter. I mean, he's, he's the highest-rated recruit maybe on the entire roster. He was a 98-rated player coming out of high school and, and hasn't really you know put it together on the field yet. But you throw him and Waller into a mix of – five other returning starters in the secondary, that should be a good unit that, that you can really build a defense around. So, you know, that with the linebacker group, Amari Barno, who is a, you know, edge rusher type guys moved around a bit, emerged as one of the best pass rushers in the ACC last season. They added Jordan Williams, an interior defensive lineman transfer from Clemson, uh, put him together with Norrell Pollard. So that interior of the defensive line should be pretty good. On paper, this looks like a very, very good defense. The problem was last year, it was not at all a good defense. They ranked 86th in our defensive team performance, 86th against the pass, on 113th against the run. So, you know, that secondary that looks like a strength, you know, maybe you didn't even have to challenge them uh, all that much because teams could, uh, you know, push that front four around a bit. So, you know, I, I... I struggle a little bit with Virginia Tech. We've talked briefly before that in earlier iterations before we finished our, our full stat projections, we had Virginia Tech favored over North Carolina in week one. That scared me absolutely to death, and I was I was a bit pleased to see uh, once we did the, the final update that North Carolina is now, in fact, favored, and, and I would expect unless something uh, unforeseen happened to the North Carolina uh, roster that that's going to hold and, and we will at least have the Tar Heels favored in that game. But, you know, the way our numbers see it, that's a winnable game for Virginia Tech. They have a 45% uh, projected win percentage in, in that game. You know, they're 45% roughly against West Virginia. That's a winnable game. They're a touchdown underdog against Notre Dame. Two touchdowns against Miami, but we've talked about maybe we're a bit higher on Miami than everybody. You know, there's there's the potential for 10 wins on this schedule. If that were to happen, Fuente is obviously in the clear. But, you know, similar to what we talked about with Pitt, saying how they're, you know, win a game that they shouldn't win and lose three that they should, Virginia Tech, you know, 
have they really won a game they're not supposed to win in, in the last couple of years? They've certainly lost a few that they, you know, shouldn't have lost. So they, you know, they don't even get maybe at times the benefit of that that other side of, of the coin that that Pitt does. So you know, it's 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 tricky with Virginia Tech. I, I understand concerns with Fuente that the change in defensive coordinator after Bud Foster retired it got off to a bit of a bumpy start. But you know, this still is a difficult team to prepare for in the ACC, even with quarterback questions, you know, Fuente and his offensive coaching staff, they've done a pretty good job of being creative and, and uh, making the quarterback a threat in the run game. I think Burmeister will continue to be a threat in the run game. I've read that he's, you know, one of the top three or four fastest players on the team, which was a surprise, but uh, I have to think that, that he's going to be in the mix there at running back. They've got options. They've got to replace Khalil Herbert, who came out and had a huge, huge year that very few expected. But they've got, you know, they've got guys who've who've uh, played a lot first and foremost, but have, have you know had moments here and there. My personal favorite is Raheem Blackshear because he's uh, multi-talented, is is you know able to help as a receiver and as a uh, running back. But Jalen Holston seems to maybe have a slight lead at being the primary you know go-to guy. Keyshawn King. Uh, was in the rotation a couple of years ago. Marco Lee has, has performed, uh, you know, or, or you know, came in and, and uh, offered an option as a bigger back as a, a JUCO transfer a couple of years ago. So I, I think they'll find the guy. But you know, also on the other hand, I, I mentioned Blackshear being my favorite. I rewatched a couple of games uh, last night, and there were jet sweeps. I, I believe I saw three separate instances of a jet sweep to Rasheem Blackshear that resulted in a seven-yard loss. So there are obviously just some execution issues. They're just little things, I think. And, and I think that might be what has, has uh, gotten Fuente in, in as much trouble as there have been. Just uh, Virginia Tech hasn't executed the little things uh, nearly as well as, as they did and you know under, under – uh, Frank Beamer. So until they fix that, you know, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle. The returning production numbers are on the low end. They're in the triple digits overall. They're 106 in offensive returning production, 96 defensively. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. I like James Mitchell. He's one of my favorite tight ends. They're again, creative in how they use him. He'll get some carries close to the goal line. He'll do, uh, they do little, uh, you know, end around things with him, but they just haven't quite gotten a a, a sort of consistent uh, level of offense to where they can, you know, line up and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to run it down your throat or, or we're going to attack uh, with Trey Turner and, and Tavion Robinson and, and, you know, beat you because we've got better players. You know, that, that, that's my biggest struggle because a lot of times they do. They match up pretty well in the ACC talent-wise. In the top 30 in roster strength, the 32nd, I should say, 22nd defensively. But the team performance numbers just, just haven't been to that level. And so they're a team that I just can't really trust. They play a manageable schedule. They've got three winnable non-conference games, I think, in the right scenario. They could maybe even upset Notre Dame. They do have a bye week, an extra week to prepare, and that game is at home. They do play North Carolina at home. Uh, 
they don't play Clemson in the in the conference schedule. So there are there are some things that that uh, you know stack up decently well. But with all of that said, you know seven and a half wins is our projection. Five on the high side in in the ACC seems like you know a team that I wouldn't be at all surprised if they end up with a 500 record in ACC play and and you know sneak their way into a bowl game six and six seven and five difficult team to trust I I think the under if I had to choose one under seven and a half from DraftKings seems like the right one but then you know if just a couple of things turn the other direction. We could be talking about a division title contender and a, and a 10-win team. So very, very difficult team, in my opinion, to, to get a hold on. Consistently inconsistent, Xavier, uh, Virginia Tech. So uh, what do you think about them in, in 2021? Are we going to improve here or um, back to the drawing board? Back to the drawing board. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to get consistently inconsistent tattered on my back. That's how many times <laughs> I've used it in this podcast. Uh, drinking game for everybody at home. Uh, but yeah, no, genuinely, I, I think this is a team that's maybe a year away, to be perfectly honest with you. I think they're still reeling a bit from the fact that they had a lot of guys sit out last year due to COVID, a lot of, uh, and just the fact that they lost a lot of talent last year. I, I think that you're not talking about the Virginia Techs of the old. They don't replenish as they used to. And, and I think so. I think we're maybe a year away from really thinking about Virginia Tech as a possible eight, nine win team. Um, you know, now, gen, now, like Nick said, this is a team that recruits well. They recruit really well. And, you know, Virginia Tech, in the ACC, still in the ACC, still carries a lot of weight when it comes to the recruiting, and you know. So Nick was right when he said that the talent still follows along with Virginia Tech, even though the wins might not be, you know, might not follow as well. You know, they finished forty third in the country last year, um, which was a big boost from seventy sixth the year prior. Um, there you have a top. 20 class currently going into 2022, a top three class 2022 in the ACC as well. So Justin Fuente, uh, a guy who has shown himself to be a pretty good recruiter uh, before he got to Virginia Tech, is finally showing on the recruiting tour that he could do that for them as well. Uh, but, yeah, I think this is a team that maybe is a year off for Justin Fuente. They need to be right now. Uh, they they got to be right now because Virginia Tech is a traditional power of the ACC, and if they don't get it together, they're definitely going to be one of those teams to start looking for coaching coaches. Um, you know, heck, I would have loved Lance Leopold at Virginia Tech. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I think he would have. I think he would have really been somebody that the, uh, Virginia Tech would have loved to have. I'm not saying that he, he's not a possible get, even with him being at Kansas. But I digress. I, I think that right now, if you're Justin Fuente, you're hoping that you can put the pieces together. Uh, their schedule, as far as you know. I think that the schedule is rather manageable. And my only concern is the fact that they're that they have an early bye week. I know I've talked about having a late bye week and you know early uh, for a couple of the last couple of teams that we talked about. They have a really early bye week, and that kind of concerns me when you look at the schedule that they ha- when you know when you look at the fact that they would have to then play eight straight games, starting off with Notre Dame in Blacksburg. Luckily, they do they get that game right off of the bye week, so they might be able to be more prepared for that. But that's just going to be a war of attrition at that point. By the time that they get to their last two games, which are against at Miami and at Virginia, it's just going to be really tough. It's going to be they're going to be running on fumes. Uh, I don't care how young you are. You play eight straight football games, you're running on fumes. So it's up to some extent. Um, so I think this is a ball club that can win six, like I said, six games, get to a bowl game. Maybe that buys Fuente a little bit more time, and maybe he can go ahead and and. and and uh, be better, much better next year, which is why I think that they'll really 
uh, get to next year with maybe uh, Kadem Knox or uh, Knox Kadem as their quarterback, or unless Braxton Burmeister is able to stay an extra year. I, I do think, like I said, next year is a more plausible year for them to be a team that competes and a team that goes well over the, you know, the seven and a half that DK has for them. All right. Last squad up in the ACC is Wake Forest. We have them at 53. Like several of the ACC teams here, Wake Forest suffered through a roller coaster season. They started 0 2, improved to 4 2, and then lost three straight to finish it out. Uh, their DK total is seven. We have them right in line there, seven and five. Favored to win eight town edges in only three, though. So uh, let's hear about Wake Forest, Nick. What do you think? I, I I know sometimes when we do conference previews, I feel like a little bit of a broken record at the end, and I kind of you know feel that way with Wake Forest as well. It's a difficult team for me to nail down. Uh, similar to Virginia, they don't recruit at a super high level. You know, similar to uh, you know. Pitt's got some some really good players, but they're not necessarily uh, bringing down top 25 classes year after year, things like that. So uh, they're in that mold. Wake Forest in our roster strength numbers, 54th overall, 60th on offense, 47 on defense. But this offense last year was, well, they set a, a program record for scoring, average 36 points per game and, you know, almost entirely uh, a, a conference schedule. So that's, you know, a, a sign of good things, of course. Dave Clawson has, has turned Wake Forest into a consistent bowl team. And, and I think that this, you know, the way that this roster is constructed, there's not really, uh, based on the experience, the production, the guys that they've got coming back. I mean, that offense, again, school record scoring offense, 16th nationally in returning production. Now that number uh, took a little bit of a hit because wide receiver Donovan Green suffered, unfortunately, a uh, injury in the spring that's going to cost him the year in Javante Nash, uh, starting right guard last season, uh, or starting right tackle, I should say, also suffered a season-ending injury in, in the spring. But, you know, on the offensive line, Terrence Davis was a multi-year starter, 31 career starts at Maryland. He ended up uh, having an injury sitting out last year, but you know you would think they'll be able to plug him in with those four returning starters, and that offensive line will at least be uh, know what it's doing. They only ranked 93rd in our performance ratings last year. Part of that was you know they they weren't uh, quite as good running the football as you might expect when they had a pretty good running back duo, but they ranked 64th in our rushing team performance last season. But you know, uh, then at wide receiver Green is is maybe the most physically imposing receiver that they've got, or or at least you know the most uh, productive big receiver that they've got. But Jacory Robertson has been the most consistent and a guy that's uh, always you know getting targeted a, a ton toward the national uh, top of the national leaderboard and targets and receptions. Uh, an all ACC type player, I think potentially a, a future pro. And, you know, Taylor Morin flashed a little bit last year. A.T. Perry is 6'5", is a you know guy with, with plenty of starting experience, just needs to step up a little bit more and, and take up some of Green's production. Donald Stewart, a transfer from Stanford, played just a little bit last year, but he's another, you know, physical uh, or, or, you know, big frame receiver that I think has potential. So, you know, Wake Forest, they, they do a pretty good job of 
you know, filling holes when they have to. And I think even though they suffered some of those injuries, uh, I think they'll be able to do that. They lost Kenneth Walker to the transfer portal. He ended up at uh, Michigan State, guy who racked up a, a ton of touchdowns last year. But Christian Beal Smith, you know, was technically the starter and, and has been productive in his own right. Is a guy who's an 84, uh, almost 85 ranked player in our player ratings, but I think is is able to you know carry a bigger load and and be kind of the go-to guy. But if not, they've they've you know brought in some guys at, at the running back position. I think that's a a fairly deep position group for them. Sam Hartman started 18 games last year, uh, did a great job taking care of the football until the bowl game when he threw, what, four picks and 10 plays or something. was was uh, really kind of remarkable to watch. But, you know, during the regular season, assuming he didn't just uh, have a, a, a huge loss of confidence after the bowl game, you know, he, he had a strong year. Uh, he can run a little bit. He, you know, there were a couple of times – uh, near the goal line where he's dropped back, look around, nobody's open, and was able to, to you know, take off, outrun some linebackers into the end zone. So he's a guy that, that uh, I think is a little more athletic than maybe I thought uh, before I did a, a couple of rewatches this past week. But I, I knew that he was somebody that can uh, challenge opponents in the passing game, especially with Roberson and, you know, when Green was, was available, but even with those other guys a little lower down the depth chart. Defensively, they've, they've been a little bit hit or miss. Injuries have been a major issue in, for several years now. The linebacker unit for, for Wake Forest, unfortunately, it seems like each of the last three years has dealt with some injuries. Last season, the secondary was hit you know, pretty hard. There are three guys still highlighted orange, which in our team profiles, we do that to, to indicate an injury, uh, you know, a note to, to be aware of there. Hopefully, they will be... Uh, a little healthier, but in part because of that, because of you know some injury freeing up playing time for for other guys a little lower on the depth chart, they were able to find uh, if not a future star, maybe a, a folk hero type guy in Nick Anderson, who was a true freshman walk on last season, who had a game in which he picked off three passes. Looks like maybe a former or excuse me future uh, All ACC type guy. He's at least somebody who. You know they'll be able to throw back there and and uh, be able to to play pretty well if uh, Trevion Reed or, or Nasir Greer, who was the one who was injured uh, for a bit last season, you know if if they need some help at the safety position, I think the defensive line has a chance to be pretty good. Three or four starters return. They only rank 66 in our performance ratings uh, last season, and they lose. Uh, Boogie Basham, who was a, a second-round draft pick, but you know, Jacory Johns was was productive at times. Miles Fox, uh, somebody who was you know really productive at Old Dominion, comes in and uh, had a, had a pretty good season last year as well. So even though Wake Forest doesn't have kind of the the you know premier players, they've they've had some of those guys in the past with Basham. They've had a couple of, of corners who've been NFL type guys uh, under Clawson in, in recent years. They don't seem to have that standout guy defensively, that that sort of elite, you know, future pro type guy. But I think that they bring enough back, are experienced enough, and have shown enough, you know, flashes at times last season, even if the the underlying statistics. Uh, show that it was a, a defense that ranked 92nd overall in team performance. I think there's enough to like about Wake Forest defensively 
when you combine it with an offense that has some real reason to be optimistic with Hartman, with Beal Smith, with Roberson, and with an experienced offensive line, you throw in a very manageable schedule, a schedule that ranks 70th in our uh, strength of schedule numbers. I don't think Wake Forest is going to really you know, challenge that upper tier, but I think a winning season is uh, you know, a, a pretty good bet. And I wouldn't be at all shocked, even though our, you know, our, our official record prediction is seven and five, like that DraftKings, that DraftKings win total of seven. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a team like Wake Forest, who has coached up pretty well and always seems to, you know, get one of those uh, games that, that they're not supposed to, and unlike, you know, maybe a Pitt and a Virginia Tech, doesn't really lose the games that, that you know, they take care of business and the games that they're supposed to win. You know, seven wins, even eight wins seems seems very, very possible, I think, for Wake Forest this year. Yes, yeah, Xavier, I mean, you know, looking at the schedule, it's not the worst ever. They have a couple rough games in here. Obviously, Clemson uh, on November 20th being the hardest one, but the only other games they're not favored in is North Carolina by a pretty decent margin, about 12 and a half points. Boston College is a coin flip. Uh, Virginia is a coin flip. Louisville, uh, Florida State is in there as well. Uh, NC State's a coin flip. Everything else they should probably win, but um, they can uh, shift the ACC in their favor. They can play spoiler. There's a lot of options for Wake Forest this year. Oh, yeah. I, I genuinely think this is a team that could be undefeated before the North Carolina game. You know, that, that's how confident I am in the pieces that they're bringing back and the team that they're going to be walking out on the field this year. You know, when you look at their schedule, yes, you talked about the Virginia game and the Louisville game. They get Louisville at home, which I think is a positive for them. Uh, yes, Virginia, we talked about them possibly being a bowl team, you know, maybe, you know, but I think they I think they are able to handle Virginia. Um, and then, you know, Syracuse is a game that I think they should win. Um, and we don't know what Florida State – I don't think Florida State knows what they're going to be by week three, let alone us. Uh, so that game against Wake, for, uh, against, uh, Wake Forest in week three for, uh, for them should be a win as well, with also being at home. They also get three home games to start the year off, which I really enjoy. Um, and, yeah, I think – I genuinely – like I said, I think this is a team that could be 6-1, and 7-0 and by the time that they see North Carolina in November. So they've already qualified for a bowl game at that point. And really, you know, this is a team that could play spoiler down the stretch. When you kind of build up that much confidence, really, like I said, really maybe one loss being on their schedule by the time that they get to UNC – you're going to be playing with some confidence and the, the last four, uh, the last four teams that they play all, we all think are possible, you know, ACC uh, title contenders or at least, you know, championship contenders. And so I think that at that point, you know, you're just going in and trying to play spoiler. You have nothing to lose going to UNC. You have nothing to lose going at Boston college at Clemson NC state, unless obviously your own outside of your own season, but nobody at that point is expecting, in my opinion, and Nick, you could tell us if I'm if by the numbers, if I'm wrong or right, by the numbers, I don't think that anybody is expecting them to go 4-0 throughout that stretch in the last four games of, of their season. So uh, North Carolina, NC State, Clemson, and Boston College. I don't think anybody's expecting them to go 4-0. And I think if you're you're at Wake Forest at that point, you're like, if we go 2-2, two 3-1 and two, three and one here, we 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 we've done a really good job with probably the hardest part with the hardest part of our schedule. And I think that, you know, when you build up that kind of confidence, it's very well possible for kids to to, to be able to do that. Kids are confidence with kids, it's not like the NFL. You know, with kids, it's a little bit different. They they they'll play above their means if they're feeling confident that they can beat anybody in front of them. Now, not everybody. You know, when you play a Clemson team, talent does matter. 
But when you look at the NC State and the Boston College, they're not that much more talented than the Wake Forest, if at all. You know, and, and so I wouldn't be surprised if this Wake Forest team got to eight wins this year. You know, DK has them at seven. I, I'm I'm going with the overall Wake Forest. I think I've gone with the under on it. Literally every other team that's had seven to eight or seven six and a half to seven wins. I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the over here at Wake Forest. I think they can get to eight. Uh, I think this is a team that that can do so. I like I love Sam Hartman. He's one of my favorite quarterbacks in the ACC. Uh, but I, I love what they uh, what he's been doing and, and just uh, the amount of work he's put in to get his spot at Wake Forest solidified. Obviously, a couple of years ago he lost his spot to oh my god his name escapes me Newman Jamie, Jamie Newman exactly you know and you know the thing about him transferring was a, a real possibility at that time because he didn't know whether or not he was going to have his starting job going into the next year and he's just continuously worked and worked and worked to keep his starting spot at Wake Forest. And, and to to be the quarterback there, and I think with that kind of consistency that they have from him, week in and week out, I think I'll be honest with you. Out of all the court, he's probably one of the best passers in the in the ACC at, at this point. To be perfectly honest with you, um, you know, obviously outside of Clemson and and you know and probably De'Ara King, he's probably got the best arm and probably the best pure passer out of the rest of out of the rest of the field there. How? So I think. That, Oh, how? Thank you, thank you, thank you. I was like, "There's somebody I'm forgetting you," but hey, we'll, we'll, uh, Scott will get me. So eh, that's, still fine. that's that's top four. I'll take it. Yeah. So and like I said, I think Wake Forest is one of the teams in the conference I was talking about earlier in the episode that has uh, more of the more explosive offenses in the ACC. I think this is a team that can compete week in and week out uh, with with some of your with the teams that are going to make it ugly, quote unquote. And, and so I think. Wake Forest's team, like I said, it's going to go over. I think they're an eight-win ball club. I think they lose the ones that are obvious. North Carolina, Clemson, losses. You know, depending on what Boston College looks like at that point, possibly a loss. Same thing with NC State. But I think they can really, can really compete with Boston College and NC State. And they get NC State at home, which I really love as well. So I like Wake Forest, and I love Sam Hartman. So I am going to go over with Wake Forest and, and give them eight wins for the year. It's a, it's a really interesting schedule. We have them favored in mm-hmm. seven of the first eight, and eight no is is not it's, it's feasible. Of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> they could they could be six and two. They could certainly, you know, they could be uh, five and three. Those those wouldn't shock me either. But eight no is possible. Now they could go zero and four in the, the last yeah. four, uh, and three of those four on the road. That's tough. But uh, they can they can build a lot of momentum early if they're seven and one. Eight and zero. I mean, man, that that would potentially set up a pretty special uh, end of the season where maybe they feel like they can compete with you know a North Carolina uh, or maybe should beat a, an NC State or, or Boston College. It's it's a really interesting schedule the way it's set up. It, it is, and uh, Wake Forest could be that wild card team in the ACC. But that is going to wrap it up for us in this edition of. Uh, CFP Winning Edge. Our conference previews continue uh, very soon. What uh, what conference are we doing next, Nick? Pac-12 next. Yeah, we're going out to the West Coast. Pac-12, yeah. left coast, my, west coast. My, uh, my my current locale. That's right. You That's you, right. You don't count, man. You've been everywhere. He's a, you know, he's a west coaster. He's a, he's a west coaster. Nick is a right? nomad. <laughs> he's definitely a nomad, but right now he's a West Coaster, so we will take it. But uh, um, all right, that will wrap us up. We will see you guys next week. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at Bogman Sports, at CFP Winning Edge, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. We will see you then. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. 
To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. Mm-hmm.